0: Today, we must look to the city of Las Vegas, Nevada, as a metaphor of our national character and aspiration. Its symbol, a 30-foot-high cardboard picture of a slot machine and a chorus girl. For Las Vegas is a city entirely devoted to the idea of entertainment, and as such proclaims the spirit of a culture in which all public discourse increasingly takes the form of entertainment. Our politics, religion, news, athletics, education, and commerce have been transformed into congenial adjuncts of show business, largely without protest or even much popular notice. The result is that we are a people on the verge of amusing ourselves to death. What's up, Matt? How's it going, Neil? So. Been very excited to do this episode since the beginning. Oh yeah, it was very high up on my list. At least H- had you read it before the episode? I'd heard of it. I'd, I'd never read it. How about you? Uh yeah, I'd read it a couple of times. Oh, wow. I think okay. I read it first for. You didn't five. mention that when we picked it. <laughs> 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 These ideas have to come from somewhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I've been meaning to reread it. So this is a good excuse. Nice. Yeah. yeah, it was my first time reading it, and. It was shocking to me that this book was written in the 80s, right? Yeah. From the 80s. So the book we're talking about, of course, is Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman.
1: He has and a good first name. I like his good name. First
0: name. Yep. <laughs> it was written in 1985. So the premise of the book is basically that he was at a conference on Orwell's 1984 because – and he was at the conference in 1984, right? It was, oh, wow, right, it's 1984, Orwell's stuff hasn't happened. And at the conference, he basically said that we shouldn't really be looking at 1984 as a model of the dystopia we could devolve into. We should be looking at Huxley's Brave New World for anyone who, you know, hasn't read Brave New World or isn't familiar with it. I'm familiar with it, but I haven't read it. Okay. So I was hoping to try to reread it before this. I didn't get a chance, but I skimmed through it again. That's another podcast. Yeah, another podcast. (laughs) Exactly. But the cause of the dystopia is essentially that this perfect drug gets produced called SOMA that gives you just unlimited euphoria whenever you want it. And there's really no reason to ever be unhappy or sad or distracted or anything if you can just, you know take this drug. And on top of that, the whole culture is built around amusement and lavish entertainment and free sex and everything. And Postman's argument in the talk and then in this book is that what we are actually seeing is a move much more in Huxley's Brave New World direction with when Postman's writing this with television being the Soma that Huxley was warning about.
1: And I don't think we've talked about this at all previously, but I'm like a huge Orwell fan, actually. That's probably one of my top five favorite authors. And last year, Well, you are a subscriber to the newsletter, so you did get this, but he has this collection of essays, basically. It's this like thousand plus page book of the essays, because he was actually a newspaper columnist for most of his career as well. And he did a, a weekly column. So it had like all his columns and everything. But anyway, I'm a gigantic Orwell fan. And so in the intro, when Postman was talking about how Orwell was wrong, I approached the book with like a ton of skepticism. I'm like, mm, OK, let's see. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see where this guy goes. But I'm completely won over to his to his side. And, you know, I think he doesn't say that Orwell's wrong. He says Orwell's wrong for our society. Yeah. So just to recap, like if anyone's not familiar with Orwell, like his especially 1984, probably his most famous book, I would say is mainly about totalitarianism and how censorship will kind of stop people from having a free flow of ideas. Whereas as Nat described for Brave New World, it's that people won't want even to go for ideas, so there's no need for censorship because people aren't even demanding the information. Whereas Orwell was saying people would demand the information, it was just going to be stopped by totalitarian governments, basically.
0: Which, to be fair, did happen in and some parts of the world, it and does
1: happen, happen. In, it in, does happen in a lot of portion right. of the world still. North so, Korea is very yeah. big brothery. China, to some extent, right? Exactly, and I'm sure there's uh, Saudi Arabia, right? Is another yeah. one. I mean, yeah. So I think what Postman's saying is that in our society, we don't have an Orwellian regime. But we have like the opposite problem.
0: And we'll dive into some of that here in the podcast. Definitely. But the quotation that we read off at the opening about how Las Vegas is sort of the symbol of our time is how he opens up this first chapter where he's talking about the medium is the metaphor. And I thought this was an interesting idea because I, I think I didn't totally get it the first time I read it, understood it a lot better now. And it's a, it's a central theme throughout the book that he introduces here that the form in which you receive information affects how that information is received and understood. And I thought that the example he gave at the start was sort of, we've gone through these shifts in information processing and absorption. And that first shift was when we actually had the written word as right. a common thing. From oral to written tradition, right? Which, yeah. you know, I'd never thought about it that hard before, but imagine having the full ability to communicate with people, but having no conception of what words look like written down. Right. Which is, to be
1: fair, that's what for most of human history, yeah. that's what communication is. Has been. And there's right? still a lot it's of people
0: old. who think that way today. But for pretty much anybody listening to this, you're literate. Right. And it's hard to imagine, right? <laughs> Living so your true. whole life speaking English or whatever perfectly fluently well, with also, no written. It's also government. fascinating to think about how that has changed
1: our own perception of the world. You know, it's do we think in terms of words? Like when you think of something, are you thinking of the word, like if you think of a dog, are you thinking of the word dog or the image dog or your dog, right? Like it's like knowing language or knowing written language probably affects your thought process in more ways than we can even track or could ever know.
0: Yeah, well, and that's sort of his point here is that we had that first shift from oral to written, and then he's basically arguing that that next big shift was from written to visual with the photograph and the television, where basically in the 1900s, for the most part, we suddenly shifted from getting all of our information via written text to getting it via audio with the radio and then visual with the television. Yeah, and I think there's taking one step
1: back too, there's one thing that both writing, usually writing, but definitely oral part, they have in common with each other, which is context, right? So like when you're telling somebody a story orally, you tend to tell the story, right? The beginning, the middle, the end. And same thing with, In well, he makes the point a lot with books, right? Like a book, it's a long form piece of content. Usually, I mean, of course, my one gripe with some of his things about books is there's a ton of crappy books out there yeah. that are like not well-researched or that are like deliberately misleading. So, maybe he's They're has, not perfect. They're not perfect, yeah. right? But yeah, they're usually fairly well thought through. And then his thing about visual, especially the photograph, I thought his point was kind of uh, very strong, is there's no context for a photograph. It's just a moment in time. There's no beginning and there's no
0: end. It's just that moment in time. So you kind of lose the whole context of that picture. And Well, I feel like that that whole context thing is such a huge part of this that that we're going to get to touch on more later because I think he's got a whole chapter on that. But what I loved here was this whole point that the and touching on the photograph a bit too the visual components never mattered before television right they would matter in if you were seeing somebody give a speech but if you read something it didn't matter what the person writing it looked like but as soon as you made the shift to television appearance made a huge difference and he gives the example of like uh, President Taft, right? Yeah, who is this yeah. three hundred pounds just yeah. not attractive dude. yeah, and or even Lincoln. to a large extent, Lincoln, right? is like yeah. in a uh, really unsmiling, kind of harsh, unsmiling, very uh
1: depressed looking. and then even. Like, from a confidence standpoint, I mean, I'm sure Lincoln had confidence, but in some of his, like, writings, it's really interesting to read, especially when he's young. He, like, calls himself ugly. He's like, there's nobody on this planet uglier than me. Like, he he would be a goth, right, today, I think. (laughs) Um, You always see him pictured in black. I mean, it could have been back then, too. Exactly, exactly. Um, Or FDR, right? Yeah, and also being tall back then, especially his build of tall. He was like six four in an era when people were not like on average five ten, like they were definitely shorter than that. Right. So he's six four in an era where that was like gigantic. Like skinny <laughs> as a bone with this like gigantic Adams apple coming out. Right. Like he's not photogenic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cause like portraits are definitely like not accurate for sure. Right. They're flattering. Very generous. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but you're right. This point of the visual nature of how somebody looked didn't quite affect <laughs> their words, right? Whereas right. I mean, now I you couldn't really imagine a pres- well, maybe you could, but I mean, Trump's not the most attractive.
0: That's person. fair. Yeah, Trump oh. kind of breaks that rule a bit. Yeah, but, but I was thinking you,
1: about before that, right? Like, yeah, before that, I mean, I mean, Obama's very photogenic. Even Bush, Bush, Clinton, is like, yeah. Reagan. I mean, Reagan was a movie star, movie right? Movie like, star, yeah, JFK. Yeah. Like, I mean. A
0: Taft, you would definitely not see a Taft. No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I kept thinking of Chris Christie. He's probably the closest thing that we have today to yeah, somebody with that kind point. of build being a major political fit. I think even beyond politics, it goes kind of far beyond that too, oh, yeah. right? It's um like CEOs of organizations, yeah. Like you don't see a lot of people leading an organization who are poorly spoken or ugly. Right. And that, especially when reading this and when reading
1: Antifragile, because the point came up there as well, it's like you really wonder how many people made to their current positions simply because they can play the part as opposed to deserve
0: the part. Well, have you read uh, Paul Graham's essay? It's called, I think it's like, It's Charisma Stupid. And his whole thesis is basically this, okay. the charisma and appearance are a much better predictor of who's going to win an election or, you know, some popularity contest. I mean, a role than, for CEO is a lot of times it is a popularity contest. Yeah, right? exactly. His point was basically this, right? That if you look throughout history, at least in recent history, where that part mattered, like charisma such a stronger predictor. And I feel like Postman would agree with that. Hmm. You know what we should do? What should we do? We should put that in the show notes. We will put that in the show notes. Made <laughs> 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 you think podcast. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I think there's this idea here too of validity, right? Which he gives this great example of where if you were like presenting a thesis and he says that somebody's presenting a thesis and they said well, as my source for this claim, I spoke with somebody and they confirmed that this was true. And there were two other people who were there who could also confirm it, right? Witnesses, yeah. Yeah, we're witnesses. And then the thesis advisor says, well, how would you like it if I just said that we gave you a PhD but didn't give you a piece of paper? (laughs) There's something very different about having it in writing. Right, it's permanent, yeah. And the distinction he makes there that I thought was really cool was the, the spoken word disappears, but also a lot of the media that we now absorb ourselves in disappears and is meant to disappear. Right. Right. He gives this example of a book, you know, if you burn a book that's considered really not okay. Right. right. <laughs> it's anti-intellectual, right? right? But a In text basically cross-culture.
1: It's, I mean, oh, every yeah. culture kind of views that really badly if oh, you burn yeah. a book, yeah. It's like not
0: cool. Yeah. But a text message or a newscast or, or a, news a Snapchat paper. or a newspaper, or even right, even, yeah. Like, yeah. It's meant to be thrown out yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah. And so that type of media is like, very distinctly different from the sources that we would get information from historically or the better sources. Right. Yeah. I think that anecdote really kind of reinforced it for me because I think up until then I was
1: like, yeah, okay. Like, and especially when at the start of the anecdote where he's talking about how like the student is arguing that, okay, how come you guys are checking this one verbal source and I've added like hundreds of written sources. Right. And you're not checking the accuracy of those. And the professors, I guess, or the advisors, I guess, is who it was. Yeah, or thesis judges. Yeah, they made the point of exactly what you said. Like the validity of a written thing is that it's already been published. It's Somebody's already kind of looked at the accuracy. Whereas in this case, it was just spoken to. you. So like, who knows if it's true or not? And especially, I think the other thing is he couldn't find any other sources
0: to back it up. That's true. He mentioned that, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although, to be fair, there's so much junk that gets published now, right. too. That was like, my one thing with this, like in the entire
1: book where obviously we both on this podcast have a huge appreciation for books. But Postman does have like a little bit of a maybe overzealous worship of the written word. Especially the validity of the written word. Like, just because it's written, it could still be bullshit.
0: Yeah. So, Although, okay, so to be fair, and this actually segues into the next chapter nicely. That nice, I planned that clearly. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but that media can be a form of epistemology, right? And so epistemology, it's a term from philosophy, basically the study of knowledge or what mm-hmm. is knowledge. And I think to the point you just made, Postman would say that, yes, historically, books and published research articles and, you know, even some newspapers were reliable. But in a television world, our consideration of knowledge and what passes as Quality knowledge has changed and that has affected all areas. Like he gives the example of USA Today. Right. Yeah. <laughs> which is yeah. a newspaper, yep. quote unquote, but it's clearly modeled after television, right? right. It's like sensational headlines and right. huge photos uh, and, short yeah, and short like, paragraphs. Like, yeah. Short paragraphs. Like it recognizes that this is how people think now. And right. so it's going to behave like television. It's right. like BuzzFeed, right? Right. Right. right, right. BuzzFeed well, acts like a, an ad.
1: Exactly. Or like the little slideshows on Business Insider. And to be fair, these outlets are just doing what works. Like they're just doing something that is resonating with their audience. They're not deliberately looking at like, well, how can we make our website more like television like it, yeah. it's not really how they're thinking they're thinking of like what's just what are people going to be interested in what will they pay attention to what will they pay attention to and that's sort of what that's what he's saying too in the book is like the longer we go on in the current media environment the shorter our attention spans become yeah. um, well and
0: i like the distinction he makes here And i'm going to read this quotation from the book too about how there's a difference between junk and information presented in a bad way so what he says is i raise no objection to television's junk the best things on television are it's junk and no one and nothing is seriously threatened by it. Besides, we do not measure a culture by its output of undisguised trivialities, but by what it claims as significant. Therein is our problem, for television is at its most trivial and therefore most dangerous when its aspirations are high, when it presents itself as a carrier of important cultural conversations. The irony here is that this is what intellectuals and critics are constantly urging television to do. The trouble with such people is that they do not take television seriously enough, for like the printing press, television is nothing less than a philosophy of rhetoric. To talk seriously about television, one must therefore talk of epistemology. All other commentary is in itself trivial, right? It's not so much that, oh, we're watching Seinfeld or whatever. Right. It's not about that. It's about about treating information presented through television as important.
1: Or especially the things that are supposedly the serious programs on television. Yeah. Right. So like CNN. CNN. (laughs) It's one that I think You know even the author would agree but even like things that are maybe more um derived to be showing true things that are happening you know i'm coming up with horrible examples but those documentary series type of things Again, those are like showing things in a visually appealing way, entertaining way, like because TV is the medium. Or like so. H-
0: History yeah. Channel. History right? Channel, yeah. This like Ice Road Truckers, yeah. <laughs> all exactly. of those shows. Exactly. Right? Yeah, so I
1: think it's like, I really like that paragraph you just read because yeah. it's like not The Bachelor or like <laughs> anything like that. That's what he's saying is like why TV is bad. I mean, there's books like that too. Yeah, So smut, you know. It's yeah, like, exactly. That's always going to be part of what's interesting. But no one's claiming that those are like serious things on television like nobody even fans of the bachelor or the bachelorette are not saying like oh this is something that everyone must watch because it'll improve your cultural horizons or something (laughs) like no one's saying that but people do say watch the news so you can be well informed right it's like very weird not weird maybe becoming more accepted maybe to not watch the news but um for a lot of people if you say like oh i don't know that that event happened yesterday they're like Would
0: you live on Mars? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) you know, I I was on that anti-news train like basically ever since I read this book. And when I first read it, probably four years ago, Mm -hmm. I got a lot of pushback whenever I tried to tell people like, "No, you should not be wasting any of your time reading or watching the news. Like it's completely useless information." (laughs) And I got so much pushback for that. And I think it's swung a lot more in the other direction now. I think so. Where people are realizing that, and we're going to get into this more later. But the news is not designed to tell you what is really important and what. What's going on? It's designed to like entertain you right. and keep you coming back, right. and so that means that sometimes there'll be important things, and sometimes there'll be you know breaking news every five minutes. Well, and, and we will
1: get into this later, but it's also like how much of it, like what can you do about? And like in terms of your actions. But anyway, we'll get there. We'll get to that part of the the book.
0: Yeah. But I I think that this distinction between how you think about information and what you can pay attention to Mm -hmm. is huge, because that's one of his big criticisms is how it's changed what we're willing to pay attention to is information. When you have what he calls the typographic mind, where you've been reading for all of your life. And the example he gives is, you know, young boys pushing plows, reading Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. And that might be overly romanticized, but it's also not impossible to Believe because if you have nothing else, or like the Lincoln Douglas debates, that is the example that he gave. Like, you want to read that paragraph? yeah I love
1: love that. Yeah, it's incredible. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Um, the first of the seven famous debates between Abraham Lincoln and Stephen A. Douglas took place on August 21st, 1858, in Ottawa, Illinois. Their arrangement provided that Douglas would speak first for one hour, Lincoln would take an hour and a half to reply, Douglas, a half hour to rebut Lincoln's reply. This debate was considerably shorter than those to which the two men were accustomed. In fact, they had tangled several times before, and all of their encounters had been much lengthier and more exhausting. For example, on October 16, 1854, in Peoria, Illinois, Douglas delivered a three-hour address to which Lincoln, by agreement, was to respond. When Lincoln's turn came, he reminded the audience that it was already 5 p.m., that he would probably require as much time as Douglas, and that Douglas was still scheduled for a rebuttal. He proposed, therefore, that the audience go home, have dinner, and return refreshed for four more hours of talk. The audience amiably agreed, and matters proceeded as Lincoln had outlined. Can you imagine <laughs> it's that?
0: Like, today? Yeah. <laughs> I I couldn't pay attention to that. Could you? Oh my God.
1: I'd be Well, actually, one thing that popped out to me while he was talking about how much more attentive people were or how much more of an attention span they had, it's even while reading this very interesting book. And as somebody who is very used to reading, I started noticing how often I would reach for my phone, which to me is an indicator that I'm not as entertained. And it's like, sort of, I need my little dopamine hit, right? Right. By uh, looking at my phone. And I was looking probably every five minutes at best, like maybe 10. It was pretty frequent. Is that normal for you? Uh, it's sometimes more than that. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> unless I'm like, unless I'm actively doing some work, then it's different. Right. But if I, especially if I'm doing something passive, like reading, yeah, it's like 10 minutes probably is my normal. And also it's like, I don't have all notifications off, like texts I still get and stuff. Okay. So if I feel it vibrate, it's like that thing in the back of your head. It's like, oh, I should look. There's a new message. And then you're like, no, I'm going to read. I'm going to pay attention this time. And then you're like, I can't wait. I can't wait. I'm going to look at it. <laughs> and then you're Yeah. So... I don't have this kind of attention span they're talking yeah. about in the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Can that's you imagine sure. that?
0: You're going and you're sitting for three hours. Yeah. And it's not three hours of debate. It's it three is a three-hour speech, yeah. right? Like, basically, no breaks, I assume. Apparently, they wrote out most of this stuff beforehand, right? So he's got a three-hour written speech. Then you're going to listen to the three-hour response and other speech and then an hour of rebuttal, right? So it's like seven hours of just listening to two guys talk, yep. right? And there's no... Although, to be fair, we did have a three-hour podcast. <laughs> well, yeah, but but I mean, I mean, people, you know, all of you out there listening to this, I assume that you are not sitting on your couch staring at the wall, right? right? Yeah. You're probably walking or, you know, driving, on the subway, maybe, driving. Like, yeah. yeah, it's, I, and I don't know, I'm this way too. I can't just sit and listen to right. a podcast, yeah, right? Yeah, me neither. One thing except I, for Nat Chat. Except for NatChat, and, and made you think. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, but I mean, one thing, this comes up later too, but that they talk about or that he talks about is how frequently television changes the screen mm-hmm. on you. Yeah. And anybody listening, I encourage you to do this. Watch the news or even a commercial and see how quickly the camera changes, how frequently. Because it will blow your mind how often it what happens. It? I mean, for a commercial, it's every two or three seconds. Wow. And I'd never really noticed it because you you just get used to that being how television operates. Mm-hmm. And then so when you're watching something and it's changing every two or three seconds, it seems normal. But when you actually count the seconds as it's happening, it's like absurdly it blows fast. your mind yeah. how fast it's happening. And the reason they're doing that is it's the only way to keep your attention because they know that if you keep a camera you know stationary for more than seven, eight seconds, people will lose focus. And there's some movies that do it deliberately and it it seems weird Right. Like, so they do it to add like that creepiness factor or something. Well, I mean, one, it's impressive because the actors are talking for way longer than they normally have to. And then two, it adds significance because the camera's not changing. Like you've seen Pulp Fiction, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. One so of my favorite movies. Yeah. There's that amazing scene at the beginning of Pulp Fiction when they're about to go in and kill the guy. Samuel L. Jackson and uh, John Travolta. Yeah. and John Travolta like walk down the hall and have a conversation in the hall before yep. they go in. Yep. And that whole thing is one take. Right. Right. And you, you it does feel wrong though. But Yeah. It, it does feel wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like, whoa, lot. the camera hasn't moved. It's yeah. so long. If you watch older movies, too, the camera takes are much longer. Oh, than now. Right. Yeah, true. but then newer stuff, it's constantly switching because yep. you can't pay attention to somebody speaking for three hours, let alone right. 10 seconds. Right, <laughs> yeah. exactly. It's so crazy. Yeah, it's also just
1: amazing how much of a... Well, I guess they didn't have the alternatives. That's like one thing. But how much more of like a book culture? It was like the stat that he had in the book of Thomas Paine's Common Sense.
0: Yeah. Blew
1: my mind. Like, So he was saying it was published in 1776 and it sold 100,000 copies in the first two months, which like the equivalent in 1985, so not even today, would be the equivalent Like proportionally to the population, would be selling 8 million copies in two months. That's in 1985. So now that's what? That's...
0: Was that 30 years later? <laughs> let's look it up right now. 1985 population US. Let's see. 240. Okay. 240, okay. So 240 million. And now there's what? 350? Books. It's about 324 million people now. So, so add like 50%. Yeah. It's about 11 million books in two months. Oh my God. That is crazy. Yeah. I mean, I think. So for reference, Mark Manson's book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Yeah. That's probably the most popular nonfiction book that's come out in the last couple of years. Okay. And that's sold just over a million copies in in about a year. Right. Exactly. So imagine a book ten times more popular than that. That's wild. <laughs> And there insane. were no podcasts or like major, you know, there's no
1: Facebook. Well, and here's the other ad. thing. They said, ultimately, the book went on to sell 400,000 copies, which again, in 1985, that was 24 million books. Yeah. Which again, today would be
0: 40. Yeah, something, like, something that. like 40 million books. Yeah. yeah. So that's, I mean, that's almost. So like, imagine 40 X. We're talking huh? near approaching like 50 shades of gray level. Yeah. But you know, common sense. And this right? is also just
1: the U.S. numbers that they're giving. Right. And it's also a book about politics. <laughs> yeah, that's
0: the craziest <laughs> thing. It's not, you know, it's not smut. It's not Harry yeah, Potter. Exactly. It's, it's like a, it's not an easy book to read. No. <laughs> 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 but so, it's just yeah. what people were used to. And that's what he's describing as the typographic mind, right? When you mostly read, you think in prose, right. you think differently, you talk differently. So people are choosing their words more carefully. I mean, I've noticed this, my speaking, I think is improved by reading more. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I also think that texting in full sentences is helpful for maintaining good speech yeah. when you speak, Yeah. because it's really easy to get in those habits of I mean, we kind of have our own version of newspeak today, which is (laughs) the text message, internet language, half sentences. And when you think in that way, then you're going to speak in that way. And his point is, no, like if you're just reading books, then you're going to think in that detailed prose kind of way. And I think that's why when we look back at people from 150, 250 years ago, the way they wrote and talked, right, even in recordings of their conversations that we have, it's almost a different language. Yeah, it is. It's 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 so much more. It's really hard to read a book from the 1800s a lot of times. And some of that's
1: like, some of the words might be different, but generally... The sentences are more complicated, they're more intricate, they're expressing more complex ideas. Yeah, and I just thought, like, it takes a
0: minute to get used to that again. Again, like, as if I used to speak like that. No. (laughs) Well, I don't know. I mean, I think that there is, to some extent, an again, right? Because there's another layer to why we're talking about this book, which is that Postman was writing this in 1985. There was no commercial internet yet. And what we have seen with the Internet is basically everything he talks about here accelerated tenfold. <laughs> yeah. So there's, you know, we've got the typographic mind that he's talking about here. And then there's maybe what he called the videographic mind where you're used to television. And now there's the like BuzzFeed mind where you can't pay attention to something unless it's a photo slideshow or, you know, a top 10 list in 600 words. Right. <laughs> and we're losing that ability to an even greater extent. Absolutely. And probably at a faster rate as yeah. well. Well, I think, you know, I've asked some, I guess, like older people about this, people who can remember very clearly pre-internet and post-internet, right? So probably somebody over 50 now. Yeah. Because I, like for me and you, it's not the same. Yeah, it's not yeah. the same. Like I vaguely remember not having fast internet, right? Yeah. But for most of my coherent memories, there was some form of the internet I could go on. Yeah. So then, you know, if you talk to somebody a bit older, they can pretty much confirm that their memory got a lot worse and their ability to pay attention got a lot worse once they started using the internet more, right? It just like, degraded the ability to sit down and read books i think there's a lot of people who are you know older now 50s and 60s who don't read big books anymore the way they could when they were kids totally because that ability is just gone i was
1: talking to my dad about this maybe a few weeks ago Mm -hmm. and like he was cleaning up like our library that we have at home and we're seeing all these books that i was like oh this is really interesting like did you read all of these like because i didn't know we even had some of them Mm -hmm. and he was like oh if there's ones that you want like take them and stuff and uh, i was like when did you read like this like when would you have gotten all these because i As far as from my memory of him, like he's always occasionally read, but probably I would say maybe like five or six books a year. And it's otherwise it's like newspapers, magazines, TV, and then the Internet, of course. But he's never really stood out to me as a book person. And so, yeah, he was saying when he was younger, maybe in his like 20s and early 30s, probably uh, he was definitely reading books a lot
0: more. And that's all pre-internet. Yeah. My dad said sort of the same thing where we were, I think we were on vacation and he was reading, it was like a James Patterson novel, right? You know, yeah. some one of those crime thrillers. Yeah. And it felt like he was being a little hard on himself in that he wasn't reading harder books where I might be like reading into it more, but it felt like he was suggesting that it was a lot harder now to like actually hard. sit down and enjoy a harder book, right? Yeah. Like. I think we think of it as work now, Mm. whereas historically it could be something you enjoyed. Right. You could sit down, you could like read the Odyssey and it would be fun. But now it's just too much work to focus that hard on a book. Right. right? I mean, I find this too, but that's part of why, I don't know, I feel like you do this as well. I try to avoid reading the popcorn media stuff. And that's one of the main reasons I don't have notifications on my phone for anything Mm. is that I know even that. Worsens it worsens your ability to, like, focus on this stuff. Totally. My one thing I would say about the internet versus
1: TV that I actually think is a benefit of the internet is you can actively seek out long-form content if you want. Right. Like, it's not like the internet is only top 10 lists and BuzzFeed type of articles. Like, there is really good long-form content out there. You just have to actively make sure your feeds are showing those kinds of things. Right. So it's still up to you. It's just really hard to do that, but you can do it. Whereas I would say in the TV era, you did not really have a choice besides maybe turning it off just simply because it was so much more centralized than the internet is. So I would say there is like, yes, the internet does accelerate this if you let it, yeah. but you also have the ability to fight it.
0: Well, the one thing that I realized recently, and so when people are listening to this, this article is out, but nice. when we're recording it, the article is not out yet. So it comes out it. Monday. So you haven't read it. <laughs> but uh i was looking at some historic alexa data it's so like alexa is the site that ranks sites right. right so what's the most popular sites on the internet and in 2006 and before that pretty much all of the most popular sites were search-based right where it was people trying to find specific things So either, you know, like Google and Yahoo and ask, right, to find a certain website or, you know, Amazon actually has been really popular for a long time. I didn't realize this, but it's been one of the top 10 most popular sites for like 12 years. Really? Yeah. Wow. I didn't realize Uh, for that long. So Amazon was up there. Walmart was up there. It's gone down since. But most of them were search related. You know, 10 years ago of the top 20 websites, only three weren't search related in some way. And none of them were social networks. It was like Fox. Uh, Viacom, which owned like MTV and all of those. And then, uh, one other, but yeah, like none of the social network stuff. And so my thesis in the article is that as social networks have gotten more popular, the junk food media has like moved in more because that's what gets shared. And so we've made this psychological switch from looking for things to having things be pushed onto us. Right. right? right. And that's like very damaging for the quality of information you get. Oh, yeah. So you can still go out and find yes. this good long form content, yes. but it's way harder now because everywhere hard. you go on the internet is basically designed to push stuff on, especially you. social
1: especially especially social because yeah yeah, you're totally right it's what gets shared it's the ones with like the headlines
0: that are like you'll never believe what happens next. yeah (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) okay so one thing i discovered though in writing the article is that facebook actually recently implemented a change in its ranking algorithm for what shows up in your news feed where it shows articles more or less depending on how long you spend reading them yeah because you can read it in facebook No, 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 no. no, no. Uh, so like if somebody shares a really clickbaity headline and then say I share it and then you go to that page and then you immediately come back to Facebook, Facebook will show that page to other people less. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because it seems to indicate it's not quality content. Right. So they're actually trying to move away from that. My thing is like people will actually read those articles though, right? Yeah, (laughs) that's true. (laughs) Like, yeah, they'll they'll get in like the BuzzFeed. Hellhole, like just going down through everything, right? And then come out an hour later, like, where did
1: I go? Yeah, It's like, this guy did a water fast for three days. You won't believe what happened. (laughs) Three days. (laughs) (laughs) Bitch. (laughs) Do five. (laughs) But yeah. Okay, yeah. So I think the Facebook thing will help. Hopefully. Yeah, we'll see. But I think a lot of people are still reading those articles. So, you know, they might actually read the article and then Facebook will think it's quality
0: content. Well, it's like like working out, you know, if you haven't worked out in a long time, it is hard to start oh, doing it. Do you again. find that for reading? I find that for reading. Yeah, for sure. If I go a week without reading something difficult, I feel like those muscles are gone. Yes, right. It's so hard. It's like, yeah, it's not completely gone, but it definitely takes some work to get back. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I, I mean, I was just thinking about this with myself, too, where I felt like it was easier even in my own life when I was in high school to read big books than mm. it is now, right? It's Sitting it's down, especially fiction. Yeah. I find fiction very hard to focus on anymore, like big fiction. I've been reading uh, Musashi. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. It's, it's like a thousand-page novel, right. and it's actually a really exciting, fun book. But even that is hard, right? It takes like a conscious effort, focus, right? Exactly. It's yeah. That's sort of the distinction he's making here: is there was this typographic mind that pretty much everybody was in, and then in the age of show business, there's more of that videographic mind, and now we would say kind of this. Cyber mind.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'd also say one other thing about the typographic mind was, and still is to people I think who do read and write, but like this idea that you have to give context and you have to give actual evidence, you can't cherry pick things as easily. You can't just throw out some data. Yeah, I mean, you can. You totally can still in the written form, right? But it's a lot more difficult because you're expected to give a lot more context. Like, I don't know if this happens to you when you write. I know a lot of times I'll, you know, sit down to write something and then I'm like, well, there's like this caveat and this caveat and this caveat. And then as I'm writing all the caveats, I'm like, wait, this doesn't make any point because there's like 15 caveats. So like, what am I actually trying to say here? And then I scrap the post or I have to like start over to figure out what it is i'm actually trying to say whereas if it was like i don't know if you want to ignore the caveats right if i'm gonna make like a buzzfeed sorry buzzfeed but buzzfeed business insider type of article they deserve it (laughs) yeah all right nat hates you guys (laughs) um (laughs) so uh yeah so buzzfeed or business insider type of type of article like you don't need to go into any of the caveats it's like okay this is this is my point i'm trying to make let's ignore all the things that don't support that point oh yeah And call it a day. Like, you know, you can very much easier to go do that. But I don't know about you. I view my at least my own site especially as a permanent record of the way I think. Like I don't view it as maybe BuzzFeed would view their site. Like I view mine as like not really like, yes, I I like getting traffic. That's good. It's like a good thing to get traffic, but it's not like I'm doing it to get traffic, if that makes sense. It's more of a demonstration of my thought process for anyone who cares what my thought process is. Well, that's
0: that's actually a really important distinction because I wrote something recently. About it was kind of related to this. You've written remember. something about everything that. It's been a <laughs> while. I, I'm getting to that point where I can't remember some of my articles. Nice, <laughs> uh, which is fun. But and and somebody sent me a response because I was calling out. I think I was comparing like BuzzFeed and Wall Street Journal. Okay. And what this, when this person responded, they said, well, BuzzFeed makes money off of ads and impressions and yeah. Wall Street Journal makes money off of subscriptions, right? And the way you make money will determine what you optimize for. And so that's sort of this problem, I think, today of ads and right. ad impressions right. is that when you make money off of people viewing ads, right. you need as much traffic as possible and you need them to stay on the site as long as possible. Yep. And so it incentivizes all of this like, Bad content, clickbaity stuff, the photo galleries that make you refresh the page every time because that's another ad impression, right? Uh, (laughs) I feel bad for the
1: advertisers on those. It's like, I wonder how many of them actually know that you're 20 <laughs> impressions. So it's like, oh, I paid for 20,000 impressions. It's like, that's really only a thousand people. It's a thousand people. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same ad. Yeah. And half of them had ad blocker on. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah there was maybe this is an article we should do someday on the podcast, but there's something about like, if you really dig into like the ad economy on the internet. It's like a giant Ponzi scheme, basically. Oh,
0: yeah. Like, well, so uh, there's a lot of that stuff. Where a big portion of ad money is going to people trying to start online businesses who don't know what they're doing and are just getting chipped over by the ad companies. And like, despite doing a lot of SEO work, I hate the SEO space for this too, because wow. it's sort of infamous for just taking advantage of people's money, right? Or taking advantage of people's naivete okay. and running off with their money. And like, ads are that way too, right? right. People burn so much money on ads because yeah. they don't know what they're doing. And the big players can just scoop up all of the right. like valuable impressions, so. Yeah, that's something, maybe we'll dive into that yeah, sometime. We'll, yeah, we'll have to look at that. Yeah. But this context free information thing is huge, right? Because in this next chapter, the peekaboo world, He's talking about moving away from this age of exposition, away from the typographic mind, into the video mind. And uh, he basically says that before the telegraph, information could only move as fast as a train, about 35 miles an hour. So... Pretty much anything that you heard or learned was heard or learned within a context, right? It was, you know, we live in the same town and you tell me something about the town and it fits into this greater right. frame of you know, the care, town, right? right? Yeah. Or I'm reading a book and it's information, you know, within the book or even with a newspaper, you're getting these full stories. And the only thing that's going to make it into a local newspaper is big news from beyond the country, right? Because right. Yeah. why else would it, you know, travel that slow, expensive way to you? But then you add in the telegraph and now I can find out what you know, somebody in Maine caught when they went out fishing yesterday, right? And it's completely useless, just context-free information. Which is like, that sounds like social media. (laughs) Like,
1: like, what did people have for breakfast? Oh, yeah. What are they drinking tonight? Like, really, like, it doesn't matter. It matters in, like, it feels like it matters when you first look at it. It's like, oh, look what Nat's drinking tonight. But then it's like,
0: okay, wait, does that actually matter? (laughs) I don't know. Well, I think that there's actually something evolutionary about this. And if you think about it, it makes sense where over 2 million years, the sapiens who would have survived would be the ones who valued information because that's how you don't die right. right if you listen to things in your environment and you look for things in your environment that might you know kill you or help you find food or sex or whatever you're going to be the one that makes it you could imagine so. the sapien who didn't care about <laughs> yeah, information the, the people like us who are like
1: let's avoid the news right let's <laughs> yeah. avoid like the village gossip <laughs> right, right that person might not have survived oh yeah there's a tiger on the loose in the village that's no, not fine paying attention. not paying yeah, attention. don't don't tell me fake about tigers news.
0: fake news, <laughs> fake news <guys. laughs> yeah. but yeah so we've got like millions of years of hardwiring to pay attention to stuff in our environment right. And that was great pre telegraph, when everything in your environment was relevant. But now suddenly, you know, even with the telegraph, you're getting some irrelevant stuff. And then today, it's right, just free information's like 99%. free to deliver.
1: So yeah. it's yeah, like
0: the vast majority of the information you get is going to be completely irrelevant right. to you. It's going to not matter at well, all. I love the road quote in, in, from Walden: "We are in
1: great haste to construct a magnetic telegraph from Maine to Texas, but Maine and Texas, it may be, have nothing important to communicate. We are eager to tunnel under the Atlantic and bring the old world some weeks nearer to the new." But perchance, the first news that will leak into the broad, flapping American ear will be that Princess Adelaide has the whooping cough, <laughs> which is like very similar to oh, yeah. it is.
0: <laughs> well, um, it always amazes me how many people are fixated, especially on the lives of oh, others. Yeah. Oh, this is going to be a fun tangent. Yeah. Well, celebrity stuff. Yeah, celebrity stuff. But even, I mean, like, okay, how many of friends do you talk to on a weekly I, basis? Um, right? Yeah, maybe... I don't know, like 10, 15. Yeah, yeah I'd at say most, like maybe. Between like 10 and 20. Yeah. Right. And then there's probably a few hundred who you have like very tangential connections yeah. with that only exist because of Facebook. Right. 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 And it's almost like a weird obligation now to care about people who aren't in your environment. Mm. Right. And when I say environment, I don't mean physical environment anymore. I mean like intellectual work and physical, right. right. Where I think we both have good friends who are in different cities that we talk oh, to totally. regularly. Yeah. And like that's fine. But I feel like the weird, obligation to stay up on the lives of people who yeah you don't live near and who you probably wouldn't hang out with that much <laughs> if you did live near each other yeah. right it's like it's completely useless information right right but it feels important right and partially i think it feels important because we have it and because everyone else does it right it's right. like it's like if you don't it's yeah. weird it's actually i noticed this
1: i have a couple friends from college who don't have facebook and uh the interesting thing is that whenever we actually do hang out we hang out like it's like fine like we are really good friends but then i have other friends who were part of our same friend group who like barely remember that that person even exists oh. so because they they're not on facebook so it's like oh their presence is like not immediately there for them yeah um but i think it actually that highlights more of like if you actually had a friendship with somebody or not Right. And if you did, it's going to still be relevant whether or not you have Facebook. There's a million other ways to communicate with somebody like you have a phone, you have text messaging, you have G <laughs> chat. Like you have so many options. They don't need to have Facebook. And those people have made the conscious choice to not have Facebook.
0: Yeah. Well, and I actually think it's really nice meeting up with somebody when you're not you active know. on social media and you don't know what's going on exactly. in their life. You yep. have no idea what's yep. going
1: on in their life. And that's so fun. I had a catch up call with a uh, friend who he has a Facebook, but he's not really um, he's not really active. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I found out he got engaged. And yeah, I'm like, that's awesome. That's awesome. Like, you know, but it's really cool like when you catch up with somebody like that where you don't know what's going on in their life. Whereas if you know every little minute detail, it's like when you finally do hang out with somebody, it's kind of it's like what are you gonna okay, talk about? Like it? that photo you posted on Instagram yesterday, that was really <laughs> cool. A plus
0: yeah. <laughs> This is part of why I think some young people end up on their phones at dinner together all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because if you were spending all day in your phone, Snapchatting and texting and everything, then when you're actually in person, you have nothing left to talk about, right? <laughs> right? Well, we're, I
1: think like the corollary point is like some people truly do feel that if it didn't end up on social media, it never happened. Yeah. Right? Like, wild. amazing that that is true. But yeah, yeah we're... Um, Oh, man. Yeah. I think this might have come up on one of the other podcasts. So oh, right. forgive me if it did. But the Fushimi and Ari shrine in Kyoto. Mm, yeah. It's in Kyoto, Kyoto, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You visited as well mm-hmm. this summer, right? Yeah. It was like so the part at the bottom where everybody was taking the pictures. <laughs> yeah. The funny thing was like there were people there who I'm pretty sure did not even see the gates with their eyes. Like they only saw it through through their their phone. Yeah. (laughs) So it's even worse. It's like you went somewhere (laughs) and literally the, your eyes never actually saw the thing that you came there to see.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Why, uh, I was in uh, I was in Paris a year ago, and I was there with my sister, and one of her friends visited who's like an art history major at Columbia, and she took us through the Louvre, and we went into the Mona Lisa room, and she was like, we're not going to look at the Mona Lisa. We're going to go around to the other side and talk about some of the paintings on the other side of the wall, because if you've been in that room, the Mona Lisa's like on the wall, and there's it's like it's open on both sides so you can go around it into sort of a second part of the room okay. and it's literally on one side it is just all people taking photos insanely packed like 90 percent of them are chinese and just you know up like selfie sticks whatever competing for space to get a yeah. photo of this painting and then you go on the other side and there's no no one probably absolutely yep. no one right and it's crazy yeah. <laughs> it's like okay you know you get that this thing is important to you because somebody else said it's important but the fact that we're living through our phones right. for all of this stuff is so insane right, right? right. and like i feel that pull a lot too like the oh we I all delete, feel it yeah well no but like i had to delete snapchat i had to mm. quit snapchat because you would Jeez. snap everything basically exactly. or like, yeah yep. i would feel like every time i saw something Happening or something exciting was going on in my life. I was like, "Oh, I have to Snapchat this, yes. right?" And I realized just how destructive that was. Yeah. Because one, it pulls you out of the experience. Yeah. But then two, you are making the problem worse, mm. right? Yeah, it's totally. sort of hypocritical for us to, to come on here yeah. and criticize <laughs> context. Well, for I feel now
1: I feel kind of bad because I did my first Instagram story right before <laughs> we,
0: we started recording. I should this. Have you out on that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but to be fair, that one's for marketing purposes because I want people to see that story it's and true. go and listen to the podcast.
0: Yeah. It's so crazy. if anybody is going to use Snapchat or Instagram stories, it should just be to promote the "Made You Think podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Then it's fair game. Then it's (laughs) fair game. But I think you're totally
1: right about this thing of like not living in the experience. And then I know for me, honestly, it's not really the pictures so much. It's just texts get me a lot, Mm. especially if there's a text I haven't responded to. I feel that pull of like, even if I'm doing something else, but I know there's a text that I haven't responded to. It's just in my head. Right. Oh, I haven't responded to that person. I've never really felt. Well, I was a very late Snapchat user anyway. I think like maybe two years after it got popular, I started making it almost as like the tail end was happening. So I haven't, I think I'm like less of a visual person in general. I've never really been into like photography But I've totally like fallen for that trap of like texting with somebody for like a long
0: time or like regularly and then you meet up with them in person and there's nothing to talk about. Yeah. And that's such a hard balance, too, because most people expect quick responses to Mm -hmm. texts and Facebook messages and stuff. But if you are fast, then you are thinking about it all the time and then you have to have notifications on and then your mind is always kind of in that place of... Like responding to stuff, and we're getting kind of off topic here, but yeah, whatever. whatever. (laughs) (laughs) And and that's problematic because then you can never really focus on anything, right? You can't read these books, right? right? Right. Because you feel like you have to keep responding. But then on the flip side, you know, like I've gotten really good at not feeling guilty about not responding to text messages and iMessages and Mm -hmm. emails and everything. But that's problematic too, (laughs) because then like like I don't feel guilty not responding to an email for four days, but to a lot of people that makes me a dick, (laughs) right? And so you can either have your attention span and your priorities, or you can be part of this like crazy hyper-responsive world. Yeah. And it's really hard to find the balance yeah, between I, them. There's, I don't know if there is a balance. There's probably is, but it's like very elusive. Uh, yeah, I find I just like swing back and forth between them yeah. for, like some days I'm just super responsive and then I'll just go offline for four days right. or something. <laughs> <laughs> but I think one other thing related to the quote, Back on topic here. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Tangent over. The Princess Adelaide thing. Yeah. In my opinion, is like a uh, comment on like celebrity culture. Oh, yeah. Right? Where it's like, there's so many things which do not, like straight up do not affect you. But then on the news will be like the biggest deal. Yeah. Biggest deal. And so like any celebrity thing, right? Insert celebrity thing here. But it's like when people go into like mourning for some royal family thing or like they celebrate because the princess had a baby or something. like. Right. I don't know. Like that baby's not any more important than any other baby. So yeah, like what? How does it affect you <laughs> exactly? All? Why do you care? We don't even live in that country and there's so many people in the US you yeah. get obsessed with the British royal family. Like yeah what? I'm I'm just not, I'm not trying to like pick on the British Royal family. Like that's not my only point here. My point is like, none of this shit affects you. (laughs) Like Kim Kardashian's baby does not affect you at all. At all. But I think the way that it's presented in media, it's, you have to consciously remember that it doesn't affect you. It's very easy to fall for that. And I don't know if you struggle with this. I definitely struggled with this where I like to know some of this stuff Mm -hmm. as conversation topics.
0: Yeah. So there's like a
1: balance, right? It's like, Becoming obsessed with it versus knowing enough that you can not sound like you live under a rock or something. Well,
0: I've got a friend who works at a consulting company and she said that whenever like at work, whenever people hung out, they would only talk about Game of Thrones or... The Bachelor, Bachelorette, or like another show, or some other topic. Oh yeah, I'm like yeah. years behind on Game of Thrones <laughs> yeah, and people. Same. Yeah, and then she she was like she was like I feel like I have to start watching Game of Thrones, get caught up on it, just <laughs> so I have something to talk about with yeah. these people. Yep. Right. And I mean, I run into that problem all the time too, where somebody, <laughs> especially with the news, oh, yeah. like, because well, my dad, especially, right, where he like it's his job, he writes for Washington Post right, and does all right, this right, stuff, right. and I don't follow the news at all, <laughs> and so he'll be talking about this you stuff. Don't. I'm just, I'm just like I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> like, I need you to explain everything. <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, you we remember that happened last week and you're like no no I I t- who is that person <laughs> yeah. right? but on the flip side it can be kind of fun to make somebody else feel special by asking them to explain something yeah that's right? a very good point too. so i feel like you can swing it the right and way and then they
1: feel like the person who is the one imparting knowledge on someone else and yeah that is a good feeling for someone
0: yeah, yeah. So that's nice true. But since we're on the topic of the news, I feel like that is one area where people might say, okay, yeah, I get Kim Kardashian's not important, but the news is kind of important. And what I really like here is how he calls that out, too, as being unimportant, right? That the information that you're taking in, it only has context if it's going to affect what you do and how you make decisions, right, and how you act. And so he's got this great quote here where he says, What steps do you plan to take to reduce the conflict in the Middle East or the rates of inflation, crime and unemployment? What are your plans for preserving the environment or reducing the risk of nuclear war? What do you plan to do about NATO, OPEC, the CIA, affirmative action and the monstrous treatment of the Baha'is in Iran? I shall take the liberty of answering for you. You plan to do nothing about them. I love that. It's, yeah, it's brutally honest. <laughs> yeah. But then you read it and hear it and you're like, hmm, yeah, yeah. you know, I'm not going to do anything about right. it. Right. And he goes on from there and he says, okay, you might vote for someone, but you're going to do that every two to four years. And you could figure out who to vote for in probably an hour before you go to the book polls. Right. Right. It right. doesn't require constantly being updated no. on everything. who's ahead
1: in the latest poll or <laughs> yeah. like
0: whatever. Like yeah. Watching every debate. It's, it's all unnecessary. Right. Right. You can take an hour, read both parties positions and then figure it out.
1: Yeah. And I think this is probably even worse in our era than at that time because yeah. it's very easy. Let's say let's use like reducing the risk of nuclear war. Right. It's very easy for someone to share an article and feel like they're doing something.
0: Yeah. Slacktivism. Like, yeah.
1: Yeah. But it doesn't.
0: do anything anything? really (laughs) because it only goes to your echo chamber and everyone's gonna have forgotten about that thing in a day day. or two yeah yeah like or six hours yeah (laughs) next time the princess has a baby we're gonna be talking about that right
1: exactly West says something stupid right yeah and honestly like i mean bringing this to like true current events right with a lot of the trump stuff i feel like half the reason people just like talking about the stupid shit that he says or even does and stuff, but no one's actually doing anything about any of it. So it generally feels like it's almost entertain- like outrage porn. I love that, love oh, that word. that that's a great term. Because yeah. yeah, it's kind of, that's what it is, right? You'll see like he says something dumb, like whatever week it is, he'll say something dumb. And then you'll see like a
0: billion Facebook posts and tweets about it. And then, like, nothing happened. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's really easy to uh, throw up a post on Facebook and be like, we need to impeach this guy. Rah! Yeah. But it's like, okay, well, what are you doing what about What are you it? doing about yeah. that? Yeah. It's kind of tangential, but I like asking this to people who are complaining about anything, where... It's very helpful for that too because it's easy to just talk, right, and be like, "Oh, this person's so annoying." it's like, "Okay, well, what are you going to do about it?" Do people roar at you back? Oh, yeah, people They're don't like, like that Barrr. question at all. <laughs> but it's sort of effective where it's like it's the same question for information,
1: right? And, and this I, is why Nat is no longer invited places. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm no longer invited to all the Antifa rallies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Berkeley. Yeah, Middlebury. <laughs> Reed. God, oh, I couldn't man. imagine going to any of those schools now. But yeah, it's it's so easy to feel like you should be staying up on, let's take like North Korea, right? Mm-hmm. It's easy to feel like, oh, I need to stay updated on North Korea or, in case something happens. Yep. Like, I guarantee you if there is an actual missile launch or anything, you will know.
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> You do not need to be watching right. the news or anything. Like, you will find out. Right. right. And that's the other thing I was thinking. Like, I wouldn't say like an argument. It's more of like a
1: debate with my dad about this. My dad's, a, I had mentioned this on many podcasts. He loves watching CNN. And I think you mentioned your dad does, but for you, he also watches CNN. But. Okay, he watches he watches the news. Let's put it way. News, yeah, yeah. Um, and we were talking about this, and he was like mentioning something about North Korea, and he was like, "Well, what if they actually do something?" I'm like, "If they actually do something, and it hits, let's say New York, I'm not gonna be here, so yeah. like I'll be done, right? Like, so I won't know that I should have known about that." Yeah. <laughs> and and the other thing is like if it hits somewhere else, like I would hear about it from some you know, like and if yeah. it's gonna happen. There's nothing I personally can do about it. Like sharing a Facebook post is not going to stop North Korea <laughs> from launching a missile at Kim,
0: me. Kim Jong-un is sitting at his computer exactly. like, oh man, I got a lot of bad tweets like, about yeah, that.
1: Exactly. He's like, Neil put out a Twitter poll and like yeah. 75% of the respondents said that North Korea should not attack the United States. So I'm going to listen to
0: that. I guess that answers that question. Yeah. yeah. Or like
1: the same thing with like the Trump stuff. It's like, he's not looking at your Facebook page to answer to his questions of what he should do. He's not like, well, 80% of people... People say I shouldn't be doing this, so mm, I don't know if I should be doing this. Like, he definitely doesn't seem like the kind of guy who's paying that much attention to this stuff.
0: So yeah, it's like, it's so easy to take in information or share it and feel like you were doing something or that it's important to you, but it's usually not. It it almost never is, right? And okay, yeah, if you work on Wall Street, then you probably want to get some financial news, but you also don't want to be watching, like, what is the guy who yells about everything and hits a bunch of buttons? Uh, 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 Jim Cramer. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) right? yeah. It's so easy to take in this information and feel like it's valuable. And he's got this other great quotation here where he says, uh, where people once sought information to manage the real context of their lives, now they invent contexts in which otherwise useless information might be put to some apparent use. And he gives the example of like crossword puzzles, trivial pursuit, Jeopardy, cocktail parties. It's like you go to these things or you're you're doing these games that just give value to meaningless data that you probably shouldn't have been collecting in the first place. (laughs) Exactly. But I think he makes some really good points in this chapter. Uh, the pseudo context as well. And You talked about this a bit before with if you just have an image of an event, right? That doesn't mean anything on its own. Right. But you take an image and you pair it with a story about that image. Uh, he gives the example of what is it like a links? And he's like, you've got a. a picture of a cute lynx and then like a story about the lynx and for some reason by having both of those it feels like you've gained something of value right. Right. like oh the story about this lynx right but literally all you can do with that is talk about it with someone else right but right.
1: also here's the thing though that gets extra dangerous too because uh, and you can go google this on your own too but look at how many times the news not just CNN but all news places I think Fox, it's expected, like they have developed a reputation for doing stuff like this, Mm. but CNN does it too. And MSNBC does it too, where they'll put an image totally out of context Mm. with the story. So like the story will be like, oh, this type of protest or this thing happened. And then it'll be this extremely like dramatic image. And you'll find out they're like not connected.
0: Oh yeah. Or it's from a
1: different, it was from like a different year. The protest was from like a different the picture they used was from a totally different thing
0: than or they cropped it in some really crazy way or
1: they took a specific picture of like the craziest looking person there. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just like they've done it. So like, go Google that if you're listening, like there's so many times. So the pseudo context, the story is one thing, but then the pictures they're showing are totally different. I think actually the Benghazi thing they got in trouble for doing this because it was the protest they were referring to never actually happened. There was no protest, but it was like a talking point. And then they made the protest look like some, it was some picture of something else that looked like
0: it was getting out of control.
1: And then the military was like, wait, this never actually, what what protest? It's kind of dangerous too.
0: Like I've been in those situations where I don't remember where I was. I was in some other country and some crazy shit went down in some other part of the country and it was being reported on in the U.S. and I think my parents or a couple friends too saw it and they were like, oh my God, are you okay? Like, yeah. I saw all this stuff is going down. And I'm like, what? Yeah. Right. What's the, it's not going yeah. on. Right. Or it is in like some really cloistered part of, you know, the city, right. but it gets completely blown out of context with exactly. certain photo selection, video selection. To be honest, with all of the like Houston flooding and the Hurricane Irma stuff. It, okay, yes, I get it was bad, but I'm sure it was much less bad than it was being reported. Or it ads. wasn't the entire
1: cities, right? Yeah, it was exactly. like, it was certain sections, maybe. I mean, no, it looks, I mean, I'm sure there are parts that were not in good shape, for yeah. sure. But it's like CNN is definitely over traumatizing it. Um, actually, I have a friend who just came back to the US after spending a year working in France. Mm-hmm. And he's talking about a lot of the things you see on the news here about France and like, you know, a lot of like the terrorism stuff and a lot of... Uh, just the hysteria that yeah. you or we get over here. He would say like his mom would call him about like, oh, like, how are things going? Okay, over there? Like, is it dangerous? Like, and he'd be like, nobody here feels that way. Whereas if you're just looking on the news, right? It's like, especially when some of these attacks happen, right? It's like, oh, France is chaotic. Like, things are going nuts over there, but it's not really. Or like, there it is bad wherever those attacks are happening, but it's not the whole country is like, you know, devolving into chaos. (laughs) Right. Um, Yeah. When uh, Trump was elected as well, my brother lives in L.A. So we would see these things like these protests on TV in L.A. and like my parents got really worried. Because it looked like chaos. Like, they're like, oh, a million people in the streets in L.A. And, like, my brother had no idea it was even happening. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I feel like the same thing in New York, too. If if there was something that was happening, like, yeah, it's in New York. But New York's a big place. (laughs) Exactly. We might not even know that it's happening.
0: Yeah. Actually, we definitely would not know it's happening. Yeah, because we're not going to be checking the news or any of that. Yeah, and and then he gives this last example here, which is like the peekaboo world where, and we've touched on it a little bit, but all of the electronic advances, and he's using television, but obviously phones make it even worse, where it's literally like peekaboo with events, right? Where they pop in and out of existence, right? They appear and then they vanish and there's no coherence or context or sense, but it's like entertaining because there's always something new to focus on and then forget about, move on to the next thing. And it's just like so crazy because all of this stuff that I feel like would have been bigger discussions five, 10 years ago, just get glossed over almost immediately when we move on to talk about the next thing. Cause you won't even remember that. Yeah. Happened. You won't even remember. It's yeah. just gonna be something else, right? It's like Trump, yeah. right? There's always something new to talk about. And so you never like fully process the last crazy thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's almost like it also makes me think of, uh, especially this past
1: election, right? You saw it. It was like a uh, game of hot potato. Like uh, who would have the last scandal before the election, right? That's and true. Like, and Hillary it, like, lost you that. get this one and you get this one. Yeah. And it'd be like one after the other, right? And it's like whoever had the most recent one is the one that people would remember yeah. when they went to the polls. And it had nothing to do about like, oh, we have to follow this for nine months. No, if you were just following it like... Most recently, like, you'd be fine. Kind of like what you said, you could get all the positions in an hour. Like, it doesn't take, you don't need to be following it for two, because now the elections start
0: like two years. like two years in advance. Start campaigning and doing rallies and speeches. That means we're just about time. We're getting there. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. This is all about that move into the age of show business and... It's like a very long quotation here. probably don't want to read the whole thing. But uh, he's basically saying that television can be used to, you know, it could just be like a light that you sit in front of and read from. You could like put books on it, right, and use it as a bookcase. Or you could put words on the screen, right? And read it like a teleprompter. And then he goes on to say that, uh, I bring forward these quixotic uses of television to ridicule the hope harbored by some that television can be used to support the literate tradition. Such a hope represents exactly what Marshall McLuhan used to say, or used to call rear view mirror thinking. The assumption that a new medium is merely an extension or amplification of an older one. That an automobile, for example, is only a fast horse or an electric light, a powerful candle. To make such a mistake in the matter at hand is to misconstrue entirely how television redefines the meaning of public discourse. Television does not extend or amplify literate culture. It attacks it. If television is a continuation of anything, it is of a tradition begun by the telegraph and photograph in the mid 19th century, not by the printing press in the 15th. And this is where he's really getting into like how television has changed conversation because he sees a big political problem with it. I think he talks about it a lot. I guess it's a few different areas. We get into education and stuff too later. But it's interesting because when I first read this and when he wrote it, the political commentary side was sort of a, I think it wasn't that big a deal. It was like, okay, yeah, politicians have to be good looking now and they have to be charismatic. But I think, you know, again, we like we talked about Trump a lot, but I think it touches on this pretty heavily that that was really a case where somebody used the media to get elected. I think that's why I don't think he's like dumb right or like whoever's working for him
2: yeah is
1: not dumb because i think they have figured out like he can basically say like whatever he wants and it's not going to bring him down because it's people's attention shifts the anti-fragile candidate yeah i mean he kind of was like and i was totally wrong about this during the election right so Mm -hmm. like i kept saying after each thing that would happen i'd be like oh he's done now he's done now there's no way they could (laughs) elect him now yeah um i yeah i'd I was 100% wrong about that election. (laughs) Like every single step of the way, primaries, regular election. Yeah, I was 100% wrong.
0: Yeah, I mean, but now I feel like it's just going to become more of the norm, right? I'd be amazed if a you know, like a Bill Clinton type candidate can do well. You need a Bernie Sanders, Trump, right? Somebody who has like that raw yeah. energy, yeah. right? Just because that's what we've moved towards. What well, I think the point he's making is that like the medium is what's caused
1: that shit. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I was going to read off. Here, Trump could that, not stand on a stage for seven hours doing a Lincoln Douglas debate. <laughs> can you imagine that?
0: That I would watch that. I would watch that really, too. Oh, that would be so entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> hilarious uh, yeah
1: yeah but like that type of candidate would never have even gotten to that level like not even probably wouldn't have even gotten into politics if that was the requirement it'd be yeah. too boring yeah probably nobody would pay attention to them or just can't construct sentences for that long to be fair i don't think too many people oh, can do that sorry i was anymore. saying lincoln and douglas would be too boring oh, right. now oh yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah sure yeah. yeah yeah i was saying like most modern candidates could probably not construct sentences for three like give a three-hour speech and the other the crazy thing, too, just going back to Lincoln Douglas,
0: yeah. is like they were writing it themselves. Right. There, no there were no speech writers. <laughs> so they were writers and orators. That's incredible. Right. But yeah, and, and this is the problem he's highlighting. The problem isn't that television presents us with entertaining subjects, right? It's fine to have entertainment. The problem is that all subjects are presented as entertaining.
1: Yeah, and I really like this like next quote here that, that goes in, which is, To say it still another way, entertainment is the supra-ideology of all discourse on television. No matter what is depicted or from what point of view, the overarching presumption is that it is there for our amusement and pleasure. That is why even on news shows which provide us daily with fragments of tragedy and barbarism, we are urged by the newscasters to join them tomorrow. What for? One would think that several minutes of murder and mayhem would suffice as material for a month of sleepless nights. We accept the newscaster's invitation because we know that the news is not to be taken seriously, that it is all in fun, so to say. Everything about a news show tells us this. The good looks and amiability of the cast, their pleasant banter, the exciting music that opens and closes the show, the vivid film footage, the attractive commercials, all these and more suggest that what we have just seen is no cause for weeping.
0: Yeah. Well, you you never think about a lot of that stuff until he highlights it. It, He also gives that example of, you know, why does the news have music?
2: Right. Like, why (laughs) is the
0: music there? Right. The music does not help you understand this terrible thing going on, but it keeps you entertained. And I think it's like, as he's saying, it's like a subtle
1: message like, this is a show. This is a show. Actually, question for you, maybe tangent, but it's definitely
0: related. Do you like The Daily Show or Colbert Show? I. So I used to like, the, okay, I loved Colbert Report, right? Okay. That one was amazing. Yeah. And that one, I think with that one, though, it was clear that it well, was a it was joke. Sat- it was a satire. Right? It was a satire. Like, yeah. I think the problem with The Daily Show is that people take it seriously. And I have caught them making the same errors as these other news stations. Yeah. And I, I don't like using the word fake news, but it's kind of what it is where you're misconstruing the facts to support a certain narrative. Taking out of context. Yeah, taking it out of context. And like Daily Show is very far left. And I've definitely like seen them present news stories in a way that like conforms with a lot of those narratives. Uh, And like I'm very in the middle, but I hate news. I hate getting information where I can't trust it. Yeah. And so with them, it's like, OK, I can't trust it. It's entertaining. It's yeah. fun to watch. But I think some people do take it seriously. We're like, no, this is good reporting. It's like, well, it's not good reporting. It's no. good entertainment. <laughs> yeah. Right. But I think it is. I think it's like the most watched news show on television. Oh, really? Well, the, or, it's that. really high up there. Or more people under 30 report that being their main source so of that's news that's than was, anything that's else. That's why I was asking, right? Yeah. So just like
1: you, right? I always liked Colbert more than The Daily Show. Yeah. But both of them frustrated me, not necessarily for for Colbert, it's not because of the content. It was more because almost everybody I knew was getting their, like, that was their news source, both of those two shows, right? And like, then they would present the arguments that the same way that were presented on the show, as if they were fact. And I'm like, yeah, but every time you go and actually do the searches yourself, there's like another side to the story. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a story. Like, it wouldn't be controversial, like, it's not like the other side is always evil demons who, like, have no morals. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, there's that's a always- surprising realization for a lot of people. Yeah. But so many people don't realize that. Like, it is very easy to sit and say, like, oh, like, Republicans don't want these people to have health care. Like, they're evil. But then you look at, like, the other side and you're like, yeah, but there is this other argument, like, what is going to happen to prices or what's going to happen to premiums or what's going you know there there is like another side like things are not as simple as the daily show makes them out to yeah. be <laughs> that is for sure but my counter argument to myself in this case is that at least these shows are on the comedy channel. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> as opposed to watching uh, who's the guy who just got fired from Bill O'Reilly. Okay, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> like, like, that's probably less, less
1: reliable. As new like they're not on like a quote unquote news station. Right. They are on the Comedy Central. So yeah, to be fair, it's like even they know that they're not the real news. So it's more acceptable. My gripe with them was less about the actual shows and more about the people watching them who like that was their only news source. And then they were accepting it as fact when it's on a comedy channel. Like,
0: (laughs) well, Jon Stewart got interviewed about this once and we'll have to try to find it and put it in the show notes. But I think he got interviewed and he got asked how he felt about that, that most people were getting their news from him. And he was actually pretty upset where he was like, he's, he's actually pretty like a a very, I would say, you know, well-intentioned person. Like, it's not like he... At least I I think I've seen the exact same clip you're talking about. Yeah. He was like, people shouldn't be thinking that it's news, right? Right. It's entertainment, right? Right. It's for fun. Right. And he seems kind of like distressed that that's what it had become. (laughs) Have you seen his interview on Crossfire? Mm -mm. So everybody needs to go watch this if you haven't. Do you remember Crossfire? It was a TV show probably like eight years ago now. And it was on, I can't remember the network, but it was two guys from the left and two guys from the right. And they would go on and they would just argue about stuff in the news, right? Sounds like CNN. Yeah, they would just like fight with each other. And Jon Stewart went on once and he was sort of the fifth person between the groups. And he was basically arguing that this is not how information should be presented, right? It's not a fight. It's not entertainment. It's not this theater. It should be like discourse and figuring out what's true. And you can just see that they are so confused by By what he's saying yeah (laughs) but what he's saying but the response to his arguments there were so positive that the show got canceled (laughs) that's amazing yeah if i'm remembering the whole story right he basically went on and just shat on them on their own show was like this is not how the news should be presented but it's funny though everything
1: now on news is presented as these panels like if if you've ever looked at it like nine screens yeah exactly (laughs) Exactly, And the other thing, too, is like, I don't think he talks about this in the book, but like humans are incredibly good at taking like small differences Mm. and magnifying them to where they're like gigantic. I mean, I'm hopefully not offending anyone here, but like it always boggles my mind that like Islam has this rift between the Shia and Sunnis, which is, in my opinion, seemingly very minor. It's over who the proper caliph is, right? You would know Um, more than me. It's like something about who's the proper descendant of Muhammad and that in itself like seems to me from the outside like a relatively minor difference but there's plenty of wars that have been fought over that difference yeah. and It's just, it boggles my mind because in general, you're agreeing on the entire religion. Like, it's not like, oh, one believes in Jesus. One does not believe in Jesus. It's like a very minute, seemingly minute difference that's now caused a war. And I think that's just a great example of how like humans take small things. Like, I think we do it in our politics today, too.
0: Well, I feel like the parties are not that different. Yeah. Well, this is part of what we're seeing with some of the social justice warrior stuff, too. Right. (laughs) Where it's like you could be the most liberal person. In the world, but if you don't conform to this one part oh, yeah. of a certain narrative, yeah. then you're you're done. Yeah. <laughs> like I love you. I shared an article yesterday about the free speech problem on campuses and it was giving these examples from Reed College okay. and they were just so insane. Okay, where, I'll give me some. Well, it was like students were protesting this professor's European history class because it was too focused on white men, right? What? <laughs> <laughs> they were like, You're not representing enough of the like Black and other race narrative in European history and like their contribution to it. And it's like, to be fair... There weren't a lot of non-white male (laughs) leaders in European history, right? But these students weren't, like, sending a nice letter and being like, hey, you know, can we see if we can adjust the curriculum? They were showing up in class with, like, posters and sitting in the front row and hollering at them, like, during their lecture, interrupting it and all. Like, it's just so insane, right? But this professor would probably be, like, happy to talk about it normally. Right.
1: Like, have a conversation
0: (laughs) with him. Yeah. And give him some examples. Like, what are some people
1: you want covered in that class who might... Be you know like relevant to European history. Like don't
0: go holler at him. Exactly, and it's like, and then this is a very liberal professor at a very liberal university, right? They're not the enemy right. to. Yeah. <laughs> Like liberal ideas, yeah, exactly. right? Go protest at, I don't know. Like, what is a non liberal university? There's definitely some in the South, Maybe I've never come across one, yeah. but. You, Chicago. We'll, we'll say you, Chicago. Okay. I think that's probably the closest we'd have to a. Because they just didn't want safe spaces? Is that the definition <laughs> of conservative? Yeah, now? I, I, that, wow. Actually, yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> in some ways, it is. Yeah, that's crazy. but... Yeah. Well, it, Chicago School of Economics is very Okay, yeah. Yeah, so not Republican, but right. conservative. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. We're very tangential now. Yeah, kind's fine. We're
1: circling it. One last thing on that is I'll have to dig up which college this was, there might've been multiple, but I was reading something about how a lot of like classics, Mm -hmm. classes at universities, they're like either canceling the class or they're like severely changing the curriculum because there's too many white male authors. And I'm like, okay, but like, these are from ancient Rome and ancient Greece. So. And also like,
0: let's be clear here, right? Plato and Socrates were not white. Right, yeah, <laughs> but not by today's definition. Yeah, sure. it's like, it's so crazy. Yeah, so they're like canceling philosophy classes or yeah. having to restructure them so that it's a racially gender balanced right. collection of yeah. philosophers. And it's like, that is an amazing- Plato is amazing white cult. in the sense that like Jesus was
1: white. Like, yeah. no, like no, okay, they're not by today's Mediterranean, yet, yeah, right? Mediterranean. I'm probably closer to Arab
0: than yeah, they probably look more white.
1: like Taleb (laughs) Yeah. yeah.
0: I mean, and that's, I feel like that's the hard thing with some of this. What's it called when you try to force your current morality on the past? uh, Right. But like why that idea gets so problematic is that having a balance of races and genders for philosophy today is an amazing goal. Yeah. But we, we simply just can't do anything about what the state was 2000 years ago. ago. And there were one in a 1000 people who could afford to like hang out and write stuff. And like they're slash rich. also not everybody was literate even at oh, that yeah. time right and it's like we're not saying nobody is saying that
1: that was good right or that you should only read this group right but if that's all the group is right, right? then you don't really have a choice yeah. yeah oh man thank god the sjw's haven't like they're not pro-gun because <laughs> that would be bad <laughs> that would be bad that would be horrible
0: but right now at least well antifa do, antifa's kind of that's true yeah that's a good point and they're as bad as like the far right side yeah. with a lot of this stuff yeah. and they are militarized that's a very so. good point well, yeah. all right, a different episode. Different episode, yeah. So back to amusing ourselves. Back to, to amusing ourselves to death. This next section is really getting into more of the context-free information and television, and I love the example of the now this, mm. where it's this. I feel like I don't we don't hear it as much anymore, but it was definitely a big thing it's not, back in the day. It's not worded like it's that. not worded like that. It just sort of happens, yeah. right? Where every forty-five seconds to a minute, the story will change on the news, or if you're or scrolling through, yeah, or in the internet. Actually, yeah, the internet's a perfect example yeah. where you're reading through Business Insider or whatever, and then you're doing There's the infinite posts. scroll, yeah, or suggested <laughs> posts, and That's you're suddenly that. on a completely un. Unreli- related topic right but you just keep going down the rabbit hole the infinite Um, scroll is a really good example actually
1: i think that's even better because he didn't have anything there's no such thing as like the infinite scroll because there was no scroll right right at that time but yeah the infinite scroll is really interesting because it's like you'll see a post maybe get all worked up about that and then scroll down to the next thing it has (laughs) nothing to do with that but you get all worked up about that then scroll
0: down to the next thing and it's literally infinite it goes on forever going forever yeah Yeah, and this is where he mentions, like, why is the music there with the news, right? right? That's a great question. (laughs) But I also really like this distinction that when you're watching the news as he's talking about it, you learn about an event and a lot about an event, but you rarely learn about the underlying more important details. Right, so I, I think you gave a perfect example a minute ago of a lot of people have this concern about Islam, but how many people actually know much about Islam? Right, like how many people have actually read the Quran? Right, and I haven't. Like, yeah, like I haven't either. Right, but people will talk about it perfectly comfortably. Perhaps that will be an episode of that would be show. an interesting episode. Yeah, I think we'd have to do like all three Abrahamic texts, yeah. we'd do like a month, yeah, something. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So, or like how many people today know anything about North Korea? Right, or even you know how many people have gone to Trump's website and read his policies? That's a great point. Right? Yeah. Like very few people, I think. I mean, that was actually something that was surprising for me during the campaign because when the campaign was going on, this was all this insanity, and then just someday I went to his site and read his policies and I was like, huh, if you removed all of the other information about him, this sounds like a really reasonable. Yeah, it's not as bad as what you think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. It's exactly. Like, oh, okay, cool. If it's you great.
1: like separate him from his personality. Especially the campaign website, I remember doing the exact, I think maybe we had been, or you had suggested it to me or something. Yeah. 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 I remember feeling the exact same way, like, wait, what? This is not what's being presented (laughs) to me at all. (laughs) And that was sort of what made me skeptical of a lot of the stuff that got reported too, right? I mean, there there was a recent speech he had. It won't be so recent by the time this episode is out, but he had like an armed services speech. He went to one of the bases in Virginia and was giving it, it was maybe like late August. So I think by the time this comes out, about two months prior. And in that speech, he was talking about, like, his update on the war on terror, basically. And people were expecting him to announce, like, a troop increase and send more troops to Iraq, and that never materialized, never did that. What he was calling for was, A, Pakistan to stop, like, sort of playing both sides, taking U.S. money and sort of paying off. Like, I know there is a bit of paying off of the Taliban they do directly using U.S. money so that they don't get attacked. But he was basically like, you're either on our side or you're not. And if you are not, then we're not going to keep giving you foreign aid. Basically, that was his one of the things he said. If you actually watch the speech, that's what he said. Second thing is he called on India to like play a bigger role if you want to be considered a world power, because India has been angling to be on the UN Security Council. So he's basically saying, well, if you want to be on the UN Security Council, you can't just like sit on the sideline when this thing is happening, like in your backyard. You need to contribute troops and money and resources. And it's not just going to be the US like in your backyard anymore. I thought the speech was not well delivered. It was a horribly delivered speech. He was like (laughs) reading off a piece of paper. But the content was actually pretty good. But then the next day, like, even though the previous day, all the people were talking about like Trump's gonna announce a troop increase, like you would think the news should have been like, wow, he didn't announce a troop increase. He called on allies to play a bigger role. Instead, it was like Trump calls out India for like not doing their job in the war (laughs) on like it was like very negative against him. And I'm like, that is kind of unfair. And like you start to understand maybe why he has such an anti-media bent because it's like he actually, again, he probably didn't write the speech. He did not deliver it well. It was not well done. But the content was fine. Like there was nothing in his announced policies that I was like, huh, that's pretty stupid. No, it was like everything was fairly well reasoned. Like I was like, okay yeah if India does want to be in the UN Security Council, you probably should start acting like you're a part of a world power rather than, you know, a regional kind of or standalone entity. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is where the
0: context is gone in the headlines. That's the problem, right? And that's where I think the fake news arguments actually have a decent amount of weight to them, where obviously not all news is fake, but so much of it is warped and pulled in certain directions now that it's very hard to know what to trust in a lot of the news outlets. And especially if you are seeing some of your own ideas being warped and misshapen in certain directions, it doesn't take much. To be like okay, well, I just can't trust anything from this source anymore. Right, right, right. and I feel like the Google memo was an amazing example of mm-hmm. that, where the memo came out and like everybody could read it. Right, <laughs> like yeah. anybody could just go read it. <laughs> yeah, and then the vast majority of news outlets were reporting on it completely incorrectly, and probably the reporter hadn't read it. Yeah, the reporter probably hadn't read it either. It, it was, was a was, great article. Like- Your article was very good about that. I, I thought. Mean, yeah, it right. was, and that's gonna be in the show notes for sure. Show notes. Yep. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it even seemed like the CEO of Google hadn't read it. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, it was. It was was such a wild And I also
1: think, and the headlines on both sides of that, like, conflated multiple issues. Like, one of the issues is, does Google have the right to fire him? Right? And, like, it's funny, actually. You would see a lot of the people on the far right say that, you know, Google was wrong to fire him. It's illegal. He should sue them. But then, truly, if you actually look at, like, what a far right position should be, it's that the company has the right to fire people for whatever
0: they want. It's actually a very liberal idea to yeah. believe that you should be protected by the company. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So
1: that's why it's very interesting to see people on like the far right kind of of that opinion. And then the other issue that's being conflated, right, is like what is actually in the memo.
2: Right.
1: But then especially, I think you're right. The context is gone in any type of media context today. So you can't discuss two issues, let alone one. Yeah. In, well, in, in that, yeah,
0: it's just... I don't know. I mean, every, I feel like every month I get more and more of the sense that I just can't trust anybody else's interpretation of right. stuff anymore. Right. Like, you have to go to the source, right. you have to read what they're talking about or listen to the speech, mm-hmm. unless you have an individual that you can really trust. Mm-hmm. Right. And like I have these people for health news because right? health news is another area where it's just, oh, my God, so much noise, right? Yeah. Just horrible. <laughs> and so if you don't have a few sources you can go to, then you're sort of SOL. Yeah. And certain newspapers and news like television shows probably aren't completely trustworthy on the whole and as soon as they're not completely trustworthy then none of it is right? right because you have that doubt in your mind
1: and the cool thing today is like you actually have access to the sources yeah much better right it's difference. like the intermediary you like think about like if it was just newspapers or even tv you were kind of reliant on the tv stations to provide you with your news like you didn't have the option of going to google and finding the source yourself Whereas today you do like in the yeah. memo. You're right. The memo is a great example. If that happened in the 80s, in the 80s, you would get reported on it, you know, by ABC or whoever the news channel was. And that's it. That's, that's your only all thing. You have. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you might be able to like nail something in and get a copy <laughs> of the memo from the guy, like write him a letter or something. Yeah. Or, you know, like whatever. But today you're right. Anybody can go read the memo yeah. and decide for themselves what the conclusion would be instead of relying on the intermediary. But the thing is, we don't. A lot right. of people don't. Yeah. Like,
0: very few people do. They they just kind of trust the source. Right. Right. Which is or they trust the report. Which like probably okay a lot of the time if it's not a contentious issue. But if it is something that could be political or something that could get your attention, right? Like a flood or whatever. Yeah. Then it's probably not being completely accurately reported on, unfortunately. But yeah, so I think this idea we've hammered on a lot, that politics has been so shaped by the media now that it's like having that television appearance, being able to get talked about in the news. And then he has this great line that we Americans seem to know everything about the last 24 hours, but very little of the last six centuries or the last 60 years, right? Yeah, It's just a complete focus on the ephemeral and the trivial. And, you know, we don't get like that broader context anymore.
1: That's for sure. And I think um, the only other thing in this section I would, I think maybe we can talk about is the commercials. So he's talking about how sort of the average commercial at at that time was 15 to 20 seconds. And he said the commercial is always addressed to the psychological needs of the viewer and not to the actual product being sold. Right. And I think that's like something you learn about in marketing very quickly that you're like, you're not selling the product you're selling, like you're solving the need of what the thing is. But the need is a lot of times is being created by the ad, right? And I think some of the things people say about like body shaming and stuff, okay, some of it can go overboard. But a lot of what they're saying is not overboard. Like in fashion and in beauty and in a lot of these industries, they're putting the images into people's heads of like what women should look like or what people should look. Like. I mean, it affects men as well. And a lot of it is driven by commercials as kind of created by the commercial, yeah. which is what he's saying. Like that TV commercial medium made that possible.
0: Like you couldn't really do that in a newspaper ad. Yeah. What about It wouldn't really work. Yeah. And just like that trivialization of information into something that can be packaged into a commercial. Right. Where going back to politics? Well, he calls it therapy, right? In the he calls commercials like or the product a form of therapy. Well, I just meant like your positions as a politician have to be turned into sound bites. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, because otherwise people won't pay attention to them. Right, and they won't fit in commercials. So you can't have like a complicated foreign policy. You have to have these little sound bites. And again, talking about Trump, he was amazing at that. Yeah, he was so good. Like just the names that he had for people. (laughs) Yeah. Right. You know, crooked Hillary. Right. Like that gets in your head. head, I think. And that's a great name. I think it was Scott Adams who said, like if you
1: once you hear that name, you can't see Ted Cruz and not think Lion Ted. Like he has a face that kind of Makes that happen. But it's funny. It's like, but it's funny though, because it's like the name
0: happened after his face, obviously. Yeah. But now you can't unconnect it. You can't unconnect it, exactly. And so those little sound bites get in your head because that's what we remember now. That's what we, you know, I'm sure Hillary Clinton had like amazing policies, but the only thing I remember from either of them from the campaign is build the wall. Right. Right. Yeah. Like I. I don't really remember. Well, I remember crooked Hillary. That's yeah, the other one. I remember. Yeah. But that's yeah. not like a policy. Right. Thing, it's not a, right. No. Of course not. Like it's the only. The sound literally thing. the only policy thing that I remember hearing from either is of them build the wall. Is build the wall. Do you remember any others? Because I felt like it was just so much. Ephemeral stuff oh, oh, back and like forth. America first, like make, yeah, America, make great. America great. Again, yeah, right. Yeah, like that, but again, point. that's another soundbite. It's literally soundbite. What a sound
1: the fuck bite? does that mean? Yeah, it means <laughs> nothing. <laughs> <laughs> like, but it's yeah. a great idea, and it's like, oh. and it does encompass this idea for a lot of people. Which in the sovereign individual episode, mm-hmm. we do talk about this for a lot of people of how like technology or just the world in general has made America not as great as it once right. was. Especially if you're in middle America, right. getting so displaced. So for certain of people, he was really speaking to them with that soundbite. Yeah. Soundbite did a great job of capturing that. Yeah. Um, no, I was talking more about like business commercials, like products. Products, products, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And like what he's saying here is like within, you know, a 15 to 20 second timeframe, you can't really go into all the great things that the product does. You kind of have to just present the problem. Slash Usually it's an emotional problem that somebody has. It's loneliness. It's their family doesn't love them or you're fat, like whatever the emotional problem they're presenting to you. You don't look like the supermodel, you know, whatever it is, the product is then shown as therapy. To that, like this product can ease your psychological pain as opposed to like the skin cream will actually reduce your wrinkles. Really, what they're saying is you don't look as hot as that model on this commercial. And by using this cream, you'll
0: feel like you're doing something to look more like that. Like underwear commercials are a perfect example, oh, yeah. right? Everyone in an underwear commercial is like extremely attractive yeah. and very and fit. The
1: underwear is not going to make you look. Like the under, no, <laughs> right. yeah.
0: but if people who look like that are wearing it, then I will look like that too, right? Right, yeah. or, uh, or beer commercials, right? Yeah, it's always people hanging out with their friends, <laughs> exactly, like yep. drinking
1: Coronas on a <laughs> beach with like. Well, Corona's done a great job of this. It's like you think of Corona and the beach in the same context. Mm-hmm. But really, what the fuck does a corona have to do with the beach? Right. Like nothing. It's very, it's very racist that the, <laughs> yeah. the Mexican beer, obviously, it's yeah. for the beach, right? It's a lager, like every other lager that's out there. It's not doesn't taste that different. And it doesn't seriously does not taste like anything from the beach. Like, no. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> it's but, also owned by an American company. So it's incredible. Like, Yeah, <laughs> that, yeah I think it, the company originally was Mexican, but it's owned by, I believe, Constellation Brands, okay. which is based in San Francisco.
0: Yeah, so, <laughs> the bottle says HO in Mexico. Exactly. So maybe it's Obviously made in Mexico. Made in Mexico, but Mexico. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you're totally right. Like, it's always presented as something like beer. You're right. It's always social. Mm-hmm. Cars usually
0: have a girl. The, yeah, cars are usually either safety, you know, it's like a mom with oh, her kid, yeah. yep. or it's luxury. So, yep. you know, it's like a rich person driving their Porsche, uh, or it's like off road, you know, ruggedness. You know, it's like a guy out in the outback, right. Right? right? His Jeep, <laughs> yeah. right? It's, yeah, it's, for an SUV especially, it's yeah, like, how many it's, times it's, are you actually going yeah, off road like with a, this? A dad taking the
1: family on a road trip, yeah. right? It's always something like that. It's like something aspirational in that sense. Yeah. And I think he did talk about like previously when ads were not on tv when it was like a written ad he was saying like the claims were a lot less mm. i guess bold for lack okay. of a better word it would like tell you what it did specifically but with like reservations it'd be like this has been shown in some cases to do x y and z right instead yeah. of like now it's like number one most you know used face cream in the world it's like you know no one's verifying that yeah and that's the thing because if it's not in writing it's so ephemeral that like you get away with it yeah I know, like, my background with Estee Lauder, they're still mostly a privately owned company. There is stock, but there's, uh, like, a family that actually owns most of the company. So they were, relative to their competitors, fairly conservative with the claims that they would make. But some of our publicly owned competitors would have, like, no issues with it, right? I mean, this, like, Estee Lauder, relative to, like, maybe companies a hundred years ago makes yeah. very bold claims. But relative to their competitors, you'll see they make like much more conservative claims. They'll say like this product has been shown to reduce the appearance of wrinkles. It's rather than uh, saying it reduces wrinkles. wrinkles. Whereas you know some of their competitors would just say, oh, this reduces your wrinkles. You'll have zero wrinkles. You'll have zero wrinkles. Yeah. Right. And like when it doesn't happen, you're pissed, but you probably just go buy another product. Exactly. You see another commercial <laughs> yeah, exactly. and you're like, oh
0: well, I'll use that one.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah. So it's it's very, very interesting. I wish actually he expanded on that part more. It'd be very interesting to me how ads have shifted In this era,
0: and I mean the digital era. Oh, I mean it's even crazier now, right? The thing that I always think about too is drugs. Okay, I think it is insane that you can advertise pharmaceuticals. Right. My dad is from the pharma industry and says exactly the same thing. He said he can't believe it's legal. Yeah. Right. And
1: he also says, from honestly, from an ROI standpoint, he's saying it doesn't actually work that well. Really? Because like, think about it. It's like, well, doctors especially do not like it because someone will then go to their doctor, which is what the company wants, right? right? The company wants you to go to your doctor. And ask for yeah. Ambien. Or this is not stuff. their way of targeting doctors. Right. Like, There's much better ways of targeting doctors. This is a way of targeting a patient and say having the patient go to the doctor yeah. and the doctor being... Uh, let's say, not really doing their job well enough (laughs) and just giving the prescription to the patient. That's the goal. Uh, But my dad was saying a lot of doctors actually don't like it, like especially good doctors, doesn't let them do their job well. Because the patient obviously doesn't know. They just saw this ad that really hit some emotional triggers. And now if the doctor says no, they're just going to go to a different doctor. Right. So it's It's like like the doctor is stuck. So doctors are not fans of having pharmaceutical ads on TV, but it happens. Yeah, it's so
0: common. It's wild that it is. Kind
1: of funds the NFL, if you think about it. It's always like Cialis or Viagra yeah, on I NFL ads, or like Bud Light, or maybe there's like two other Papa John's. I wonder, I wonder who's watching yeah.
0: NFL. <laughs> oh, wow, that sounds so bad in context. Know. It's like okay, Viagra, Bud Light, and Papa John. Yeah,
1: That's, that is <laughs> the NFL's others, main customer. Yeah, <laughs> oh. yeah. Um, like Jeep. Yeah, I've seen Nissan, I want to say, on there. You know what's sad, though, is I'm a Nissan commercial. I'm a Nissan driver, and uh, that was the car that I got. I don't eat Papa John's. I don't drink Bud Light. I certainly don't use Cialis or Viagra. (laughs) But I watch the NFL, so clearly they're missing out on me. They got
0: you on the (laughs) Nissan. They're they're hedging their bets. (laughs) I drink other beer, but... (laughs) Yeah. Oh, Uh, man. But I I do love this uh, discussion of teaching. Mm, right. Yeah. And he shits on Sesame Street, yeah. which was really surprising on the first read. But then it kind of makes sense. So I'll, I'll talk about it. And I'll read from the book here. There could not have been a safer bet when it began in 1969 than that Sesame Street would be embraced by children, parents and educators. Children loved it because they were raised on television commercials, which they intuitively knew were the most carefully crafted entertainments on television. To those who had not yet been to school, even to those who had just started, the idea of being taught by a series of commercials did not seem peculiar, and that television should entertain them was taken as a matter of course. Parents embraced Sesame Street for several reasons, among them that it assuaged their guilt over the fact that they could not or would not restrict their children's access to television. Sesame Street appeared to justify allowing a four or five-year-old to sit trans- Fixed in front of a television screen for unnatural periods of time. We now know that Sesame Street encourages children to love school only if school is like Sesame Street, which is to say, we now know that Sesame Street undermines what the traditional idea of schooling represents. It makes sense, right? It's like Sesame Street is basically a series of commercials, you know, these little 30, 45 second clips. Of some fun little tidbit of education for kids that they don't have to put any work into focusing on, right. and they they probably do learn something from watching it, but their ability to learn outside of that context is diminished, or learn in like a deeper context, yeah, like or like longer form, right, type longer of form focus. Yep. I, I actually think this is a reason that Duolingo is bad for language learners, mm, okay. and I actually think that people spending time on it are being counterproductive because one, I've never met somebody who More. did Duolingo for a few months and then went to Spain and was able like speak Spanish, right? right? Like right. That, th- that doesn't happen. Yeah. Uh, so it's mostly sort of like a photo activity way to feel good about yourself. Yeah. Right? Or you're being productive. Yeah. Like, I'm being yeah. productive. Yeah. Right. But then it diminishes your ability, I think, to fear of being wrong. Because you sort of get penalized for being wrong in the game. You have to like start over or whatever. Mm -hmm. You lose points. But the only way you learn language is by being wrong, right? And like trying to communicate and not knowing the words and having somebody give you the words, right? You can learn language really quickly in context, like trying to speak it with a native. But if you're playing this game alone in your room, matching words together and trying to type it in and get it perfect the first time, you become afraid of the actual way of learning a language. Right. So, yeah,
1: I always find like uh, a couple of years ago when I, I went to India for two, for like a month, actually, it was probably like 25 days or so. And, you know, I used to speak a lot more when I was a child. I used to be able to speak Hindi a lot more. And then I found that like when I went at first, I was like, okay, oh, yeah, I understand a lot of things people are saying, but like when I try to talk, it would, it would not come out properly at all. Like my grammar would be all fucked up. And yeah, I, I sounded like it, probably a two year old trying to speak. <laughs> But by the time I left, it was like, and not even like, it did not take the 25 days. It took like seven, maybe 10 days. You know, granted, I have a background, right. but you're totally right. It's like making the mistakes that improve it, right? It'd be like, I'd be talking to like my relatives and I'd use a completely wrong word. They would laugh and then I'd be like, okay, I'm not going to use that word again. Or I'll use like, uh, that's the wrong word in that context, or I'm using the wrong grammar here. But you definitely learn it through making the mistakes. It's not through like sitting there on a program. Yeah, sitting alone in your room, right? Like listening to tapes it's and also playing really a It's really hard to motivate yourself to do that. Unless like you're actually going to be speaking with somebody. Hard to okay, motivate yourself like, to make yeah, the mistakes. The finally, no, no, no. I find like the having the necessity of speaking mm, yeah. is a lot easier to I think you mentioned that maybe in a different episode or maybe on NatChat, where, you know, if you're actually in a country and you need to find the bathroom
0: or something right. like it's a pretty motivating way to learn a language. Oh, Yeah. When I was in France, when I was in Paris, I had a French tutor and most of our lessons were him just taking me out into Mm -hmm. markets and stuff and making me do stuff or like making me try to talk to people about things. And it really sucks at first and it's really terrifying. But once you kind of change into that mindset of, oh, wait, this is going to be fun. It's like a game. And then get the other person in the mindset of the, hey, this is a game and this silly American is trying to speak with you. Then it's kind of fun. Right. But if you're in that, no, I need to like learn it perfectly first and then go out into the world, you're not going to get that. And so I think what he's saying with Sesame Street is it got kids hooked on learning, quote unquote, but it got them hooked on Sesame Street and television. And then when they went into a classroom and had to do real learning, they couldn't do it anymore. Mm. Right. It's like you can't sit there and pay attention to a teacher for 45 minutes if you're used to paying attention to a little 45 seconds. seconds. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And seriously, that most ADHD is bullshit, right? It comes from this. Yeah. When you have- This is s- why you can't pay attention. Exactly, yeah. right? Like parents are giving their kids iPads to play learning games, quote unquote. And- That's a really good point. That's kind of like what he's saying here about how it's yeah. assuaging their guilt. It's like, oh, well, I'm giving him a learning game, so it's okay. But that game is designed to keep the kid obsessed with it so that you keep buying in-app purchases, right. which means that it's going to be really ephemeral, fast. It's not gonna f- make them really focused because if they have to do any work, they'll go to a different learning app. And so they're going to get hooked on this kind of learning that discourages deep focus and hard work. And then they can't do anything in school. And so especially if they're a young boy, they're going to like go crazy. And (laughs) And it's like, like, no wonder that no wonder they uh, think they have ADHD. Right. It's incredible. And the other thing I
1: do like that he does keep pointing out in this chapter and in other chapters Mm -hmm. is how it's not a grand conspiracy. And I think taking it back to like Orwell, that was a big, like, turning point for me where I realized, like, wow, he is right here in saying that Orwell was wrong because in our society, it's not, like... You can't blame, like, the government. There's no, like, Illuminati that's sitting up there. Deep state. Yeah, yeah, like, it's not, like, this... At least I don't think it's anything like that. (laughs) Um, I guess everything is certainly possible. But the evidence does not point to that. The evidence points to like as exactly the point you just made here of the app company has made this app so that people keep buying in-app purchases and then that's and parents keep giving it to their children so that they can parents can go do other things and they don't feel guilty. It's like this giant system that's at fault. It's not any individual entity that is conspiring to reduce America's
0: attention span. Yeah, and the systems at fault are evolution and capitalism. Yeah, right. Yeah. And those are both pretty good systems. Right. Exactly.
1: Right? They've gotten <laughs> us from where we are. We, we
0: don't <laughs> not want either of those <laughs> right. things. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah. Exactly. That's a great point.
1: Yeah. Those systems are capitalism and evolution, which yeah. are yeah. And so the, literally yeah. the yeah. Only probably two of the best of functioning there. systems that have ever been. Well, evolution. Are Democracy is probably up there too. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Right. Like. But evolution probably definitely is the most effective system. I was going to say, I was going to use the word created. Then I was like, (laughs) well, I don't know about that. But uh, and this is why I think it's important to be aware of this, because this problem will most likely only get worse.
1: Right. It is getting worse relative to 1985.
0: We've seen it get worse in our lifetime. Right. I mean, I remember a life without smartphones. Oh, yeah. And there was no like notifications coming in all the time telling you to check Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all that. But we live in that world now where if you thought that it was hard to focus on things in 1985, now today we're getting interrupted every like 10 seconds if you let yourself. And literally the only way out of it is a deliberate individual effort because the whole world now wants to amuse you to death. And it's not going to change, right? right? I mean, I'm not going to go out and be like, let's tear down the internet. It's it's like an individual choice. You have to say, I'm not going to participate. It's the only
1: way out. Yeah, and you can't change the system. Like the system is what it is. You're certainly not going to change evolution. So the only way is opting out of like the notifications, opting out of like watching the news regularly. How do you deal with, so one criticism I've gotten about the whole like, okay, you're not going to check email that often kind of thing. If everyone else is doing it, have you dealt with negative backlash against like, okay, you're the only one not doing it? Especially in a connected system like email that tends, for most people especially, has to do with work, right? Especially in the, you know our information economy. And then people who use social media for work things as well. Like yeah. my Instagram story related to Made You Think Podcast. Well,
0: yeah, that's the hard thing is when it's part of your job, right?
1: right? I mean, I have a little bit of experience. It's part them. of your job, though. You're a marketer. That's a lot of things that you do is whether it's content
0: that you're marketing or yeah. other things. I mean, they are on social yeah. I don't know. I mean, uh, I've heard different versions of it. One version I like is you break your day in half where from say you wake up at seven and then from eight to 12, you're completely offline, right? Where Like you're using the internet, but you're unresponsive to anything. And then after lunch from one to five, you're responsive to things, right? Our mutual friend, Justin, he runs his company this way. So nobody's allowed to ping anyone on Slack in the mornings. Oh, or allowed to expect any emails, or schedule any meetings or anything. You know what's funny though? I was literally last night watching an episode of The Office.
1: Yeah. I'm not against TV because it's <laughs> funny, but uh, I was watching an episode of The Office where the warehouse crew quit, and then, if you, I don't know if you watched the show, but the warehouse manager, Daryl, that's the, the guy, the character's name, uh, it was like 11 a.m. And he still hadn't done anything. They were like, oh, have you interviewed any candidates? Did you even know that the warehouse crew had quit? And he's like, not checking email till noon. And he looks right at the camera and he goes, four hour work week. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we have to find that clip and put it yeah put it that. in uh, yeah Tim Ferriss has talked about how he like it was totally unexpected that that was gonna happen yeah but basically the, I think the point that the writers were trying to make that was like pretty hilarious is like the principle is good, but there's certain things in your job. Like you like that guy not checking email till noon is he almost got fired for that. Right. Because it's like literally his job to manage the warehouse. And if he didn't even know that the crew had quit, yeah. he hadn't checked his email. <laughs> it's problematic. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess my point was and it was top of mind because I just saw that episode <laughs> yesterday. Yeah, <It's okay>. okay. <laughs> is like how how can somebody balance that uh, if maybe their company isn't so progressive in that way as Justin's is.
0: Yeah. That's a good question. I mean, I feel like if you have a manager or whatnot, you could always talk with them about it. Yeah, that's a good and point. Yep. Especially if you phrase it in the right way, right? You don't want to say, hey, I don't like responding to things, so, you know, deal. Yep. But if you phrase it more like, hey, I will be able to do twice as much for you yes, if exactly. I get three hours dedicated in the morning where I'm not having to respond to anything, right? Is there a way that we can like work together to make that happen? Because yeah. I want to like contribute as much as I can, right? That's right. a very different conversation no, and, and that's like probably pretty manager, reasonable.
1: And the manager wants you to do a good job. So yeah. it's if you're wording it that way, that's for sure. I've also found like the tools themselves, can be helpful. Like you can on Slack, there's a setting that's like you're in a meeting and you can snooze notifications. So even if people are pinging you, it'll show that you're in a meeting. Um, I've found that people also can schedule work time on their calendars Mm -hmm. so that no one can book their time. Right. Because I know a lot of companies you can see other people's calendars, but it won't show you what the meeting is. It'll just show you that they're busy. Yeah. So I've seen people block off like the whole morning will be blocked off. And you wonder like, wow, this person's in a lot of meetings, but. A lot of times they're actually just blocking off time to get work done. Because otherwise you'd put
0: time on their calendar. Exactly. <laughs> um, you pull into a million meters. Yeah, so I mean,
1: there are a lot of tactics people can use. But again, going back to the book, it's up to you to use those tactics because the world is certainly not going to help. Like, you
0: got to do it. And I actually think too, that it's easy when you hear arguments that, oh, turn off notifications, don't check email. People immediately jump to the work concerns. Mm-hmm. But I actually think that if you left all the work stuff on, you'd be fine. It's the social stuff that's, that's really problematic. That's a very good point. It's getting a notification every time somebody like tags you in some stupid meme on Facebook or somebody favorites your tweet or you get an upvote on Reddit or whatnot. Like those are the ones where it gets really harmful because, you know, Microsoft Outlook isn't designed to keep you in its system, right? Mm, It doesn't care. It's an enterprise system. It's not an ad driven model. model, It's not an ad driven model, right? It's not a social app, but like Facebook. Right, they have the smartest developers in the world working day and night to make you use their product more. Yep. Right, that is the whole point. And there's also job. ways you
1: can get smarter with the notifications. Like to be fair, these systems do give you ways to control things. Yeah. Like I know, like LinkedIn for like they started at some point doing some really stupid things around notifications, where like they'd give you birthday notifications oh, and like, okay. oh, this person has a work anniversary for this job that's like a side gig that they have. Yeah. Just, like <laughs> yeah. like you get all these random notifications. You can turn them off. Like there are ways to turn all these things off and just keep the important ones. Like I only want notifications from LinkedIn when I get a new request, because sometimes it could be like a potential customer. And I like I do want to know that. But I don't want to know when Nat has like his Nat Chat one year anniversary. because like <laughs> you don't. I, <laughs> well, frankly, there's probably gonna be an episode about that when Nat Chat has <laughs> a one year anniversary. But I'm also like LinkedIn is not the place I really care. Like, you know, if it's an important anniversary, I would probably find out from Nat, <laughs> like if it's because he's yeah, somebody exactly. that I talk to. Right. And if it's not somebody I talk to, somebody I don't really care much about. I don't, I don't care, care about their right. work
0: anniversary. I don't think I've ever cared about someone's work anniversary. Yeah. And I would not expect anyone to care about mine. But you'll go on and you'll have like 30, you know,
1: congrats, congrats, exactly.
0: congrats. congrats. But there's
1: ways to control it, is my point.
0: Yeah. Like the apps do give you ways to control these things. Although I think the simplest move is just switching from push to pull. Yeah. Where yeah. instead of getting push notifications, you go in and get the stuff when you want yeah. it. Right. Changing that for all
1: my social apps made such oh, a big man, difference. A big Except for Messenger. Process. I had to keep Messenger on because it's a messaging app. But I
0: have it off for Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, yeah. like all the other well, I, The other big thing with Facebook for me was not having the app on my phone mm, and then yeah. blocking the news feed and the trending bar on web. Oh, that's smart. So that's amazing where it's like, if you looked at my Facebook here, I'll, I'll show it. We'll, we'll put a screenshot in the show notes too. But yeah, it's like there, there's nothing, right? Oh, wow. And so... This makes it so easy to just drop into Facebook for a second, see if anybody tagged you. Have you. Any notifications. It's have basically you have- notifications. That's exactly. what you have. Yeah. And you have the ability to go search if you for other for people. Yes. yes. But it's nothing being no- delivered exactly. to you. There's nothing that's showing it's up really? demanding your attention. We'll have to talk about how to make that happen. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll Maybe I'll write a little guide and we can link that in the show notes too. Always pushing content. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Such a writer. <laughs> yeah. It's bad when other people put content in front yeah. of you. When we do it, it's it's okay. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I just feel like there's so much to this idea of amusing ourselves to death and the Huxleyan warning, as he calls it, that, you know, we kind of have entered that world where why would you ever not be entertained? Right. Nobody has to be bored anymore. There's this ultimate world of like fun and fantasy and entertainment in your pocket all the time. You don't have to be like sad or distressed. There's always something new to entertain you. It's kind of wild. And do you think we're losing something by not being bored? Oh my gosh, yes. Like I feel like boredom is so good for creativity and processing and just thinking about things and like for productivity too. Cuz if you're never bored and you're always like doing something, you never actually step back and think about what you should be doing. Mm. Right? Yeah, that's a very good point. Do you ever think about um
1: I forget where I was thinking about this. Oh, I was waiting for the subway. And I was like, you know, you look around, everybody, including me, is on my phone and everyone's on their phone. And you look around and you're like, I wonder what this looked like, you know, 15 years ago, even. That's not even that long ago. But there's weren't smartphones like your phone would just not do anything down there It'd just be like <laughs> yeah. texts and calls. Right. So it's like, yeah. what are you going to be doing on your phone at that time? Whereas now it's like everybody's on a social app, including me again, not saying I'm not doing this as well. But it's just like I had there was one moment where I was like, I really wonder what this looked like. And like, were people bored or were they thinking about stuff? Were they thinking about their life? Were they reading like a magazine and getting like some, you know, again, pop article that wasn't really relevant to anything. Like, yeah. yeah. So I was,
0: was just thinking about that. And that's that's why I was, asked yeah. you a question. I've seen a good photo where it's like a bunch of people. Oh, the newspaper one, right? Yeah, the newspaper yeah. one. They're either on a train or standing at a train platform and everyone's on their phone. Nice. And then it's a side-by-side from like 50 years ago and everyone's reading the newspaper. Nice. And it's like the asocialness hasn't changed just the medium, hmm. which I find kind of compelling. Yeah. I think there's a mix of we just don't want to be social a lot of the time. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I don't believe that as some people do, that if you got rid of phones, everyone would just talk to people all the time and
1: I, make I friends gonna, in the I subway. I'm inclined
0: to agree with you
1: because I know like back in pre, you know, smartphone or whatever days, I know when sometimes, you know, I'd be, even if my family was home and stuff, I'd come home from school and I just like, you know, I'm like on the edge of introvert, extrovert. I'm clearly extroverted a lot of times but there's also times i just don't want to talk to people and that used to happen a lot after school because i'd be interacting with people all day so then i'd come home and like i would read like the back of the snack box so i was eating out <laughs> like i just want i just so i think you're totally on to something that it's yeah. like i probably wouldn't just sit there <laughs> like there i would find like something to be distracted by right and it's not really like the smartphone that's necessarily default the smartphone's better at doing it yeah. but again as you said it's like evolution.
0: That is probably more at fault here. Well, and I think the bigger difference now too is that a newspaper never interrupts you and demands you pay attention to it. Mm, that's a good point. It's always it's there, there if you're bored. It's but you can there. as you said, you can turn your phone into that. Yeah. No, and I think everyone should, yeah. right? Like and it's
1: not that hard to do. Right apps do give you a way to do that and as you said you don't have to have the apps like
0: i mean you don't have the facebook app right on your yeah, phone but I like miss nothing important in my life by not having it right <laughs> same thing with snapchat right you miss literally nothing if you get rid of snapchat i don't know you I missed know, all my
1: snaps Nat. Uh, sorry well <laughs> <laughs> um uh. i do think there was one last section that he had in the, in the mm-hmm. last chapter which was about computers and i guess maybe we can we can read that Yeah, he said, to ask is to break the spell, to which I might add that questions about the psychic, political, and social effects of information are as applicable to the computer as to television. Although I believe the computer to be a vastly overrated technology, I mention it here because clearly Americans have accorded it their customary mindless inattention, which means they will use it as they are told, without a whimper. Thus, a central thesis of computer technology, that the principal difficulty we have in solving problems stems from insufficient data, will go unexamined. Until years from now, when it will be noticed that the massive collection and speed of light retrieval of data have been of great value to large scale organizations, but have solved very little of importance to most people, have created at least as many problems for them as they may have solved. Reminds me (laughs) a lot of like actually the sovereign individual episode that we did. You know, I think the one thing that he definitely missed is that just the large scale organization thing, like Yes, I would say big companies have been helped, but big companies have also probably been hurt as much as they've been helped by the internet. I think the point that he's onto here is that a small percentage of people will have been very much helped, but the vast majority of people maybe their day-to-day, it might feel like like we do have a lot more at our fingertips than people right. did 15-20 years ago. But if you really take a step back, I'm not sure how much of it actually quote-unquote improves the average person's life, right? Like, yes, you are connected to the world now, wherever you go, or to people halfway across the world. And like, that could be great, or it might not be. You might be more, maybe unhappy, you might be now comparing yourself to people everywhere in the world. and I wonder too, how this affects other people looking at America, like people who maybe are in less fortunate countries, because smartphone penetration is everywhere now. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know, like on the whole, like, I wonder if you take the aggregate equation of the computer... I wonder, right? Like especially right. with a lot of the unemployment stuff now coming in with like some of the automation, and I mean, this is why I was relating it to sovereign individual post. Is oh, some of the neo-Luddite stuff? Yeah, like yeah. I really wonder in the aggregate, what the result is.
0: Yeah, well, I think he's certainly right in what his main point here is that for some people, yes, computers are necessary and valuable, but for a lot of people, it is simply accelerating and enabling this useless information consumption, right? right? Exactly. Yeah. That's 100% true. Yeah. That's sort of what we've been talking about the whole time. Yeah, And I think that almost gives us a challenge then to use computers in a productive way where it's easy to feel like we're using them, but a lot of time, I mean, even something as simple as, Oh, we have a disagreement about, you know, the height of Mount Fuji. Right that data doesn't actually matter, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, are you going to use yeah. that for anything besides talking about it with someone else? That's true. But the temptation is still to pull out our phones and, you know, Google it, right? Right. Oh, I'm but, certainly guilty of that. Yeah, oh, me too. And I'm not just saying that's necessarily bad, but it is a good example of, okay, we have access to all this information, but you don't actually need to know what the height of Mount Fuji, view, right? Yeah. It's not important, right. right? And especially stuff about, you know, what's going on in the small village in Zimbabwe, right? Like, that doesn't matter, right? I, I'm sorry, unless you have a family that lives there. Right. Useless data you. Right. So on that sense, definitely true and it's easy to pass the time on computers consuming information without ever realizing that none of it matters right makes me think of the pandora's box myth again another
1: episode we talked about power of myth myth. but episode four episode four but it makes me think that maybe there was some truth to this whole pandora's box idea Mm -hmm. i think certainly he's making the case for tv being a pandora's box type of invention like kind of it's out of the bag we can't go back to the reading era, right? right? I think he makes that point numerous times that it's like, you can't kind of put the genie back in the bottle or whatever, you know, whatever the analogy, Pandora's box-esque analogy you want to make, like the invention is now here, but it doesn't seem like in the book he offered too many solutions to this. (laughs) And even we, like the solutions we're offering are like, I think a very small, small, small percentage of people will actually do them. It's like turning off notifications
0: and things like that. Like there's not that many people that do that. You know, yes and no. I think that, It is moving more in that direction. So I don't know if you saw, but with iOS 11 for iPhone, they block cookies now. So websites can't track where you're going anymore, which means Facebook retargeting and all of that like doesn't work. Interesting. And I feel like that's a really interesting move by Apple or Apple wants to create their own ad network or something like, yeah, I mean, hopefully that's not what it is. I won't be surprised if it is, but (laughs) I was going to say you have a lot more optimistic view on this than me because I think it's getting worse. (laughs) Well, I mean, okay, so I'll give another example then. And this one's, I think, clear Facebook games. Remember when that was a thing, like Farmville and Mafia and whatever, and you would get millions of notifications all day. And then Facebook was like, you know what, we are making money off of these apps, but this is kind of out of control. We need to stop this. And they, you know, they kind of did what was best for people. And maybe that was because people were reporting them so much that it it was clearly Mm -hmm. annoying. But maybe we'll see that with a lot of the clickbaity stuff too, right? right? Where if people slowly move in the direction of disapproving of it right and not wanting it and not clicking on it anymore you know that channel gets worn out then maybe we'll move back towards better content like I don't know that we will I hope that we will it could be aspirational but I just think
1: like the norm is getting to be a shorter and shorter attention span yeah like I don't know do you have any like cousins or like nephews and nieces who are younger I do but I don't interact with them, them very too much no. okay yeah I mean even I have a couple uh nephews and nieces who are like just entering their teenage years mm-hmm. and they Like they're not bad, as bad as you would expect maybe with attention span, but they're certainly worse than I remember we were when we were in teenagers. But of course, like the Internet was just becoming what it's becoming now. But it's like they are constantly on social. If it's not on Snapchat, it didn't happen. Like that is totally normal for them. So what I'm really curious about is like when they are adults and the ad companies are now targeting them like the expectations are going to be even smaller than they are with our generation. It's just going to be fascinating to see. So I'm way more pessimistic about this, I think, than you are. I think it's going to continue to get this part at least of the attention
0: span thing is going to continue to get worse in the aggregate, but that doesn't mean you as an individual can't fight it for yourself. This kind of sounds bad, but I think that will accelerate a lot of the problems we are seeing with like income disparity and stuff, Mm -hmm. because simply being able to pay attention will become an extremely valuable skill that 90% of the workforce won't have. And I think that's actually a very smart thing that you just said a great point. Like a hundred years ago, You were working in a factory probably and you had to go and pay attention so you didn't like get your hand chopped off and most people could go and pay attention. But how many people in 10 years of social media and everything will be able to pay attention to like a white collar desk job, right? You're probably right. It's probably getting worse. Or think deeply about something and come up with any kind of actual insight, right? I think
1: that could be you're totally right if somebody has the ability to do that. Right. And it's so going to be more and more valuable.
0: Yeah. What we might see is like even more income disparity where the few people who have kept their attention spans and their like ability to think beyond the, you know, amuse ourselves to death media will be the only ones who actually like can do meaningful work consistently. Right. And then you'll have a massive portion of the population that is literally like brave new world, just taking the SOMA, right. sitting at home. And maybe like that's the basic in income VR. things, right? Yeah. Or like maybe
1: that's, that's where the universal basic income thing comes. I don't know um it's a really sad vision of the future though right. but, but that, it sounds exactly like sovereign individual though. well it sounds
0: exactly like brave new world right yeah <laughs> that's true too yeah i mean in sovereign individual it's like the nation states breaking down right. right and people leaving and some people staying and giving more to like city states but i feel like but it's driven by this breakdown in skills though Right. It's like some Mm, people I feel like it was more driven by a breakdown in uh, ability to domicile your work in different places. But this
1: the sovereign individual is somebody who has the ability to do all those things. Right. But you'd never develop the ability unless unless you you had the focus. Right. Right. So it's almost like this is like a
0: precursor to that. And that's a weird future to imagine one where it's like five, 10 percent of the people working and the other 90 percent kind of just hooked into VR, Mm. like hanging out at home. Well, there, I mean, there's a lot of things on this, right? Yeah. But um, uh, I guess Second Life kind of died, right? Like, is that still? Well, they're actually a making a new it? one for VR. Oh boy! So, <laughs> and the the screenshots and everything for it look crazy. Like, they're trying to build the Oasis from Ready Player One. Oh man! You know that I don't think that world's too far off, right? like we'll do something more positive at some point
1: yeah like like i know (laughs) like like very like dystopian (laughs) but the good news is like i'll tell you at least my prediction history i'm like horrible at predicting things so if i'm predicting this like there's in all likelihood it's not going to happen and the future will look a lot different than this yeah hopefully in a better way because
0: to to be fair going off of what they said in sovereign individual right like general predictions are hard but forecasting based on incentives is generally pretty accurate And this one you're
1: forecasting based on evolution
0: yeah evolution and incentives right like we will move you know whatever people click on and pay attention to that's where the money will go and as people become less and less able to do it it'll have to become more and more ephemeral and fast-paced and so i don't know it's like
1: yeah the only other interesting thing too i mean this is also back from the book but maybe like one chapter before this but related to this note is he did end with like saying education could be a solution, right. but like he also at the same time was saying how a lot of what's being taught is being taught because it's entertaining. Like, what was the thing where he said the unit on... Oh,
0: yeah, the unit on whales. Whales, (laughs) yeah. It was like videos and quizzes. Yeah, and he (laughs)
1: said it was because of the interesting visuals that could be attached to it, as opposed to, like, the students needed to know about whales. Yeah, students didn't need to know anything about whales, right? Right. Right. And so, it really makes you wonder, too, is, like, from a teacher standpoint, it's going to take, like, you know, teachers who don't kind of take maybe the lazy way out and really think about how they're teaching and what they're teaching. But then also they're still going to have to fight against this instinct
0: of there's low attention span that students have. Right. Yeah. I don't know what the solution is. Yeah. I mean, I don't like what we're seeing right now, which is parents creating the problem and then, giving their kids effectively meth to combat it, right? Like that doesn't seem like a sustainable solution because I think the attention span issue in 10, 20 years, like that's gonna be a concern. But also we have no idea what happens when you put an eight-year-old on amphetamine for like every day for the rest of their life, right? right? I mean, I, I had a friend who was on for like a long time and it took him basically six months to get himself off of it because the withdrawal and the addiction was so bad, right? But like he was prescribed it and he's actually, he's totally fine now without it. He's been able to like fix the attention problems just by working on his focus and stuff,
1: but it took him six months, right? It sounds like Uh, getting off like a hard
0: drug. It literally is. Yeah. Yeah, It's it's like getting off of cocaine or something. (laughs) It's crazy, but we're using it to combat a problem that we have created and willingly like inducted ourselves into, right? Right. There's a reason that this didn't exist as a problem 50 years ago when you couldn't be endlessly entertained. But I mean, can you imagine a kid who grows up reading books, like having ADHD, right? right? Obviously, there will be some but not in the widespread no. way that it is what now. What is it now? It's like 10% of it's the, Something absurd. Yeah. yeah. I mean, honestly, I think depression is a big part of it too. Mm. Or I think this is a big part of depression as well,
1: right? Where, is it the comparing yourself to others kind of thing? Or is it more of just the lack of ability to focus on something? No,
0: I, I think it's like the comparison to others, the inability to entertain yourself anymore, right? I think we've become so reliant on these sources for entertainment. And, and I need to be clear here. There's depression where your brain chemistry is literally screwed up and you don't produce enough dopamine. Right. right? That's one thing. And then there's another depression which is the one that is getting talked about most of the time now which is like you were just sad relatively frequently right and you get diagnosed with depression for that and you get drugs for it yeah and these drugs are like pretty dangerous and it's again like the tv
1: ad could convince you that you have it even if you might not um i think this has probably come up on numerous episodes or or it's certainly come up on natchat where like everyone goes through periods like that where things are not good i mean to be clear, there is actual depression, right. but the percentage of the population that has it is certainly lower than the percentage of the population that's prescribed. Antidepressants. Pre, uh, yeah, antidepressants. Yeah, yep. yeah. This was a much darker episode than, than I expected.
0: <laughs> I we were playing it, <laughs> although the it, title has death in it. So that, that's true. But <laughs> I, I feel like when we picked this book, we said, "Oh, this will be kind of a fun, lighter episode <laughs> since we're doing having bigger books around it." But
1: yeah, alive. but to be fair, he did start even at the beginning with a dystopian vision, yeah, saying fair. that that's where the world has moved. And Yep, yeah, I thought it was really interesting. Would be very curious to see what he would have said about today's world. I know. I wish he was still alive. I wonder if he'd be running around like acting very cocky because he was <laughs>
0: he completely really right about a lot of stuff. <laughs> Yeah. But this was interesting. It was. So definitely let us know what you guys thought of this on Twitter. On I'm Twitter. I'm so on Twitter. on social I'm media. Social. Yeah. <laughs> Be sure to include a GIF so we pay attention to it. Yeah. Uh, no, but seriously, I'm curious to hear other people's thoughts on this. Yeah. Right. Yeah, like, it's a... Uh, I think it's something that some people react to relatively strongly, and we've thrown out a lot of potentially controversial ideas. So I would be curious to hear people's thoughts and definitely pick up a copy of the book, um, Amusing Ourselves to Death, Neil Postman. It's very short. It's only about 150 pages. Oh, yeah. That was the thing. And it's a very readable book as well. It's really readable, you can get through it in a couple of afternoons. You could probably get through it quicker than listening to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly. Maybe around yeah. the same amount of no, time. No, it'll probably take you maybe a little longer. A little longer yeah. But yeah, no, we would definitely recommend it. Yeah. Any last thoughts? Uh,
1: yeah, I'm really curious to see what people think. Both of the episode and then of the book itself, yeah. and then also maybe there's solutions that like we're just not seeing. Oh yeah, or that we haven't heard of because right. you know again, social media becomes an echo chamber. And if there's something you know we haven't heard of, maybe there are education things that are showing promise. I'd love to hear about them personally because mm-hmm. yeah, this is a bit of a dystopian vision, and <laughs> hopefully, hopefully there's something we're missing here. Yes, yeah, I said but- the same thing after the sovereign individual episode, and you know I genuinely feel that way. Is like I'm very much an optimistic person, and. There's a part of you that always feels like, okay, we'll figure it out. Like, as bad as things look. And I like to assume that there's something I'm not seeing. So, if there is something I'm not seeing, please, please send
0: it. To me. <laughs> Let us know. Uh, I'm at Natty Liason, N A T E L I A S O N. And I'm at The Rail Neil S. Just in case you all aren't following us on Twitter yet. Yeah. So, we'll chat with everyone there and see you next week. And subscribe, leave a review, tell a friend. All those things. That too. All right. See you guys. All right, we hope that everybody listening enjoyed that episode of Made You Think. Hope it made you think about something. <laughs> I couldn't resist. Couldn't resist. No, it had to be said. But... As always, episode show notes and more are available at madeyouthinkpodcast.com. Definitely go check it out. Get the links to everything that we mentioned in the show. You can always hit us up on Twitter. I'm at Nat Eliason And I'm at the Neil S. So let us know what you thought of this episode and share it with a friend who you think might enjoy it. This podcast can only survive and grow with your help. And we would love it if you would let somebody else who you think might enjoy listening to these topics know about the show. Thanks, guys. See you next time.